Right, yeah, I'm good, live. man. Whenever. We are live now. Uh, we're doing it. We're in the. We got the grinder going. Hi, internet. Yeah. We have returned with our guest. My my name is Holden Stefan Roy. Everyone, joining me tonight on this very special episode of Bridge the Gap, the show where we take interesting people such as Mr. Trev Elder Jones and walk through their lives and learn a whole bunch of them. Uh, well, that's who's joining me, Trev Elder Jones. That was an awkward I intro, but we, we just <laughs> roll with it. We roll with it. Um, there's been a little schedule switch up on our side. So for those that are used to that, like end of the week battle rapper stuff going down on Saturdays, that's now on Wednesdays. And when I was saying I was booking Mondays and Wednesdays, now I say shit like I'm booking Mondays and Saturdays. Trev is our magical first Saturday without end of the week just doing our thing over here. So shout nice. out to uh, the beginning of some new in this universe. Um so yeah, we're super excited to have you here. And I think that um, you're an interesting character because you break out the box of a lot of the more traditional guests we've had. Uh, and I never went into this like, I just want to talk to musicians. I wanted to talk to interesting people. That's why I start to show off saying the words interesting people. The part where you do music is just one of the things that like would make a person interesting. The part where you slang dope legally makes you kind of interesting. The part where you <laughs> interviewed me well, I mean, how did you get to the point where you're linked up with a Willie Scandals and a Cortese and you fucking interviewing rappers and shit? Well, that that's also interesting, right? Like, there's a whole story behind this guy, the whole universe into it. But also, a lot of us speculate on things like what a dispensary is and shit, but you actually know what these things are. So, as we had the opportunity to go through your journey, as you'll see, a lot of detail goes into going through your journey. Um we can learn a lot especially in a point where it's like for real like we went legal and i read regulations and laws about me as a consumer but you think i was reading all that other shit no it was really boring so i focused on the me as an end consumer and then all this time has passed and now there's words like mom appearing on youtube ads and you're like what is a mom you figure out it's a mail order marijuana but you're not sitting yeah. there going you're like, I don't even want to Google mom weed. It just sounds corny. You know, like, what is this shit? So I'm like sitting there on this other side of it. And then you just appear and you're like, bro, I got like all the, the world's worth of things in my life. Cause keep in mind, folks, I lives up in Montreal, Quebec, where the government wants to sign the dope. And I believe Trev is in Ontario, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Where it's different, different worlds. So we just should put that caveat on it. On that note, I do want to get through your life, but I feel like even if you're not like a musical guest, my first token question would still be super interesting because you ended up talking to musicy people. So it's a bit of a story. Just run with it. We'll see what happens. It's an experiment today. Um, kind of like how y'all go crazy over on the King's Court, which y'all should check out Thursdays live at 9 p.m. over in the Elders Green Room. That's right. They're fucking great peoples over there. Shout out Willie Scandals yeah, and Cortese as well. Cortese, I'm fucking saying that terrible. He'll be on the show soon in the future. I digress. So my girlfriend's washing the dishes this one time. And she's uh, playing that Black Eyed piece on, on her phone. That I got a feeling. Ooh. She's like dancing around and she's like bopping and she's doing her thing. I started thinking a lot about this song, right? And how this song in particular is like, uh, uh, like, like it's exercise music now. It's chores music. It's this whole vibe of like people who want to move and stuff, which is which makes sense. But it's also so very different than what it was like 
10 years ago back when i was sitting there in the clubs and we was all dancing around drunk as fuck to that song in circles and shit it was the party jam and now it's the chores jam and it's just so nifty to me how like music can like evolve over time like that right so with that i started thinking about how nifty it is that all the current club music the cardi b's and all of that is basically going to be the chores music of these kids of the future that's just what it is. These people are going to grow up watching up, then it's up, then it's up, then all that shit. It's the future music. Then I started going, yo, but like musical journeys are super interesting, right? Because they play like a soundtrack to our lives and have so much context into all the different, um, you know, decisions and choices we make. And I, there's a huge correlation between weed culture and music culture, let's be real. So it, it's like a fair thing to like explore a little bit. Um, and I started thinking about how when we talk about music so conventionally, we end up at this point where um, we, we, we focus on adolescence and when we get into it and what we cared about and our identity and all that's really important, but it's not really the start of anybody's journey. So the start of the journey really is like way back as early as you can remember. So I like to start with music because it really taps into those youth memories, right? So you go back yeah. to being young. Like, what does it feel like? Like when you're like five or earlier and like for me, I can picture my dad with these gray boxes all linked up with speakers and the amplifiers and the radios and bumping Led Zeppelin tapes. And at the nighttime, there was that 90s dance music, that shit that would be played over there. And at Christmas time, we had this techno remix of christmas bangers my mom she had these shitty bootleg disco knockoff tapes and shit anyway all this stuff is like stuff that got played a lot when i'm young i totally affects my life today in a lot of different ways and whatnot and it explains a bit of the realities of growing up and everything so i was hoping if you could walk us a little bit through a bit of the musical soundscape of you being super young and what it was like to be like a very little let's say a trev not so elder jones yeah. It's funny that you say that because I come from such a diversified music background. I remember as far back as I can remember, the first things I was listening to, this may shock a bunch of you, but um, my parents had an eight track player. And so there were there were two eight tracks that I would I would jam to around the house when I was like five and six years old, as early as I can remember. And the one was the YMCA, who was the village people. But I mean it was like the whole album like the in the navy the whole and i'd be jamming it in the living room and i mean like full-blown pipes singing five years old going at it and then the the other eight track i was just talking about this yesterday um was a was an artist called boney m okay. and he did some tracks called, called night flight to venus and uh rah rah rasputin i had no idea what the message and the music was back then but something about it was like it got a hold of me and i realized like music was going to be a big part of my life, you know? And I turned, I turned nine. When I was nine years old, my parents decided to put me in like the equivalent. I know, keep the jokes down though, but they, they put me in, they enrolled me in band camp, but it was okay. like back then it was called, it was called drum corps. So like, Hold on, we're going to get to that, but before we do, yeah. let's go back to being like five, before you get to drum corps, are you even involved in some singing? Are you a singer? Like, are you five bopping around singing, dancing, doing all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. I was, I was born to entertain. I mean, the time I was born, it certainly wasn't, you know, there wasn't uh, TV shows and such like today, but we did stuff like school talent shows and, and stuff like that. And, and I was definitely, you know, wanting to, wanting to sing like every, every kid's dream. You know, I knew every word to every song that I sang and 
I was singing in front of my family all the time. I remember we were five years old and I was singing Michael Jackson and trying to trying to uh, break dance at the same time for a family function. I was it was weak, but <laughs> it was Yo, there, man. you know. I mean, there's still a level of boldness to being five years old trying to bust up Michael Jackson in all capacities. That's bold, Trev. I'm glad we went here. This is a good start to this. <laughs> so uh, that's cool. A lot of you know what? Like there is a high correlation between uh, if somebody's doing singing and dancing, in let's say your age bracket, um, and them saying Michael Jackson being who they did. That's I don't know. I never thought about it before, but his name keeps coming up a lot with people who are older than I and their like love of his music, which again I missed that wave, right? Like it just wasn't part of it. So it's cool to hear you say that. So you would bust out this. <coughs> also, Sorry. it's fine. It's so nifty how much like children were like busting out like full on musicals back in the day. I don't know. Do kids do that? I don't have kids, right? So I don't know if that's like a thing kids still do. Do kids like bust out musicals all the time? I don't know. But uh, that's so cool that you did, because not everybody I talked to did stuff like that. Were you also into drawing? Were you like a visual guy when you were young? No, you know, and I always wished my best friend growing up, I remember he used to draw Transformers for us. And like they were so detailed and I would color them like I was coloring a coloring book. And I, I used to try and he used to try to teach me, but it was lost, man. I mean, even to the day, I'm lucky if I can draw a pot leaf man you know what i'm saying i don't have any artistic ability when it comes to my hands that's for sure all right but you're still singing and dancing so that's still pretty fucking oh, yeah. less um are you also one of those kids that was leveraging the tech around you to make little mixtapes or anything like that when you were young no you know i i was uh i'm from the generation i'm gonna age myself man you know they call me elder but so, i was uh i was about you. six years old when the atari came out and so my, my parents got us an Atari and uh, my grandparents were rocking the Intellivision. And so in any spare time that we had that we weren't doing like full-blown family function stuff, you know, I spent a lot of time playing video games. It exercised my uh, super, super speedy mind. Video games were a focus for me to help, help keep up. my hyperaction down. But we're talking like 1983, like Atari shit. Like we're early. talking like 1981, bro. <laughs> ah, like, so you were like living through, at least in a youthful way, the shit that I watch on YouTube with regards to like old gaming shit, like the what's it called, the ET video game. Like you must have. Yeah, seen, yeah, yeah. Did you ever play the ET Atari game? Hell yeah, man! I remember. I can legit remember when it came out. My grandma used to like to spoil me and my brother. Uh, my parents hated it, but. We go to Scarborough for the day, and, and my grandma would take us out to like the local Toys R Us, or I don't even think it was Toys R Us back then. I think it was like B Toys or something like that. And she nailed the ET game, and she was so excited for it, you know, because ET was like a huge thing then, and it was hard to get this game. So she was really stoked for us, and and I remember playing it for the first time. I think it was like six or seven years old and like the game was so confusing it made no sense whatsoever you played for like 10 minutes and you're like oh you know give me my asteroids back man this is weak you know and you didn't want to be rude to your grandma you know because your parents back then you know if you weren't grateful for the scraps you got you were getting you were getting cold smacked upside your head right mm. so your grandma you would hear her coming down the hallway and no matter what game you and your brother were rocking, like you, you ripped that cartridge out in quick time, man, and slammed in that ET game and pretended like you were full blown into it. She's like, "Are you enjoying your game?" And we're just like, "Yes, Grandma, yes." 
you know, and she'd hang out for a minute and then peace out. We'd swap that game right the fuck back out. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. So what were the lit games that were like? Oh, like- the, the lit game? Uh, dude, I could go in my, I literally, if, I, if I'd known you were going to ask me this, I'd go in my other room right now. I still have an Intellivision from 1981. And I, I searched high and low to find the game because the game is lit, man. It was called uh, Tron Deadly Discs. And back then, Tron was like way ahead of its time, right? Because the, the graphics for that movie were, were for, for that time, were, were sick. So when the game came out, Tron Deadly Disc, you were just like this little stick figure in the middle of a square room. Bro, I Googled Dudes it. would come out. Yeah, you're checking it right now. I knew you are. I'm going to flash that over so y'all can see it right quick. That's what this looks like. Okay, yeah. That's so lit, though. <laughs> like, here's the thing. Like, I really appreciate this era of video games in particular because it was a wild west. It's effectively, like, the most grassroots hip-hop era of the video game industry that it ever was going to be where, like, you tried everything and you tried anything and you did all the things and while sometimes you got et you also got this shit that turned into epic franchises that ended up being whatever so it's like it's just cool to live your passion through it you know see it a little bit no yeah there was uh they had a couple star wars games as they came out too um there was an empire strikes back that game was lit because you got to shoot down the, the walkers and stuff so i mean this is what this is what entertained us back then you know and then uh We'll get there eventually, I'm sure. But, you know, when the, the birth of Nintendo was, like, huge for my generation, right? Like, it brought video games to a whole new whole new level that we weren't really ready for yet. It was, it was mind-blowing at that time, so. Yo, but that's, like, so interesting because that's, like, probably the big issues of you being young. Like, you, like while yeah. they debated video games for us, they must have really debated video games for y'all is it was new and yeah so you lived through the video game crash and the birth of nintendo yeah and it was it was wild too because if you were a gamer like they bigged up commercials were huge back then you know and they really caught your eye when you were young they weren't corny like today they they were really kind of cool and you know they bigged up some things that that really caught your attention if you if you're old enough to know and remember they had the nintendo had this thing called the power glove and this was like revolutionary man so like they replaced the joystick and you put on this nylon glove that had plastic fingers, like plastic rubber fingers. And no matter how you moved your hand and each finger was a different function. And so like, it was actually the very original VR, even though it was wired, it was like this concept of a VR hand controller. And this was like 1991, maybe 1992. So it didn't get a lot of, it didn't get a lot of weight because it was really awkward to use and stuff. But from a, from a gamer side of view, watching video games evolve, you know, from, from the asteroids that we knew from playing quarters or your grandma's, you know, and then you get this Nintendo comes out and it's all these bright colors and real music, not so much, you know, four bit music anymore. You know, you got some real theme music and true characters. The, The big thing for Nintendo was they now allowed you to like relate to your character. Prior to this, you know, games didn't have characters in them. You know, Tron was just a dude on the screen throwing a disc. There was no relation to it, no relation to Pac-Man, you know, no relation to the, the asteroids little triangle spaceship. 
But when Nintendo came out, they marketed it away so like you could relate to your character. You're now Mario in the game, you know, chasing your your loved princess to the end, you know, and it really got gamers a lot more involved in the game when we could actually follow a story and follow a character's life story like Zelda and stuff like that. They were legendary because you became so involved in the game, you know, and that's where true gamers were born. Guys that sat in front of their Nintendos for eight hours trying to figure stuff out. You know, my dad remember this is people. I swear that's like, it's pre-internet too, though, right? So you got to remember, like, right. if so you got my... stuck in a video game, you were you were fucked. Like it was like, fuck it, I'm come back to that in a month and see if I can figure that shit out. There was a no time, cheats, no a little shit, bit man, later you know? on in like the '90s when my dad would call 900 numbers for video game help, not for sex. Dude, I did this. All right, I did it once. I can tell you what game it was. I can tell you what I was doing. It was the original Final Fantasy for um, for oh my uh, God. Nintendo. Yeah. Dude, I'm not even joking. That. I love that. So game. like, me too, dude. I I downloaded a hardest a retro video game like fucking my... ever. It was so hard. Okay, so so do you remember um, closer to the end you fought? It was one of it. It was an end boss, and everything that you threw at her, she had a mirror on her, and it would come back and it would reflect and it would hit you. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me because she'd kill you before you could do any melee damage. So all your spells and shit would bounce off her. And I, I tried for weeks, man, weeks. And you got to think I'm like 13 or 12 years old. Finally, you go in the back of the Nintendo book and right at the very bottom, man, it says for tips on how to beat the level, call 1-900, blah, 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 299 a minute, whatever the hell it was. I got my ass whooped, bro. My dad got the phone bill and he's like, are you calling sex lines and all this freaking? I'm like, no, dad, I'm just, I'm trying to fix a video game, which made him actually even matter. I think my it's dad like, would have been happier you. to know his <laughs> son was like calling to jerk off rather than call to get some video game help. So, but okay. uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I remember those times, bro. So <laughs> Me and your dad probably, probably game. Is, um, so what ended up happening is uh, I'm born in 87, right? So my dad is like you went through that whole like, rush that you're like describing and he had me in his early 20s so he had me like pretty young um yeah and dragon warrior one was the first video game i ever beat i swear seven years old and then you know shout out Ginny g says what's up to you trev um what's up? and then uh it was final fantasy one was the next game i played and i got about halfway through and if you recall correctly on this console cartridge if you use the n on a new save file and you're not paying attention, you're gonna overwrite your file. So I'm halfway through the game and I wanted to try a different class because I'm seven and I overwrote. Dude, I was after you get the fucking rat's tail thing that like ups you guys to the next class. I was after all that and I just overwrote it on some dumb shit because I was a kid. And that was my first exposure to overwriting your save file was Final Fantasy one at that age. Dude, I remember, I straight remember the, the birth of the memory card. It was PlayStation 1 and Nintendo 64 that first brought the fucking birth of the of the save card. Mm. And it was like every gamer's fucking dream, man. Do you remember the I passcodes? remember leaving my... my, my yeah, dude. <laughs> I remember calling up your buddies like midday and be like, Yo! You got that fucking... Did you get that passcode for, for passing level six yet? <laughs> shit like that, man. Back on the real phones where you had to like dial mm. and shit. Or like the hacks, like in Mario, um, Mario three, 
where if you played the level certain right, you could use the flutes in right away to like skip the whole fucking game and get to the end. Yo, my dad basically gave me this education on that gaming culture you're describing when I was like <laughs> fucking five, because that's what he was up to for real, real. He was the guy that would spend eight hours, nine hours because you couldn't save. That was another big thing yeah. out of these games is you would literally have to run that nest almost 24 hours, 36 hours to beat it. Like it would be like a, I would get in trouble if we like kick the adapter and unplug the game. Like you don't understand. My dad would like lose his shit on some like I'm, you. I mean, I'm, I'm there, it. man. I, I know I can totally relate to this, man. Where is this, right? Like, cause back then too, back then too, when we were like, when the first gen of, of Nintendo came out, like nowadays, it's common to have a TV in every room, man. Some motherfuckers got TVs in their bathrooms. <laughs> but back when I was a kid, it wasn't like that, right? Like, if you had, if you were a kid and you had a TV in your room, like in the '80s, you were fucking blessed, and your family was probably rich as shit, right? And so, most of, most of our our systems were hooked up to like the family TV. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So actually. you'd actually have to hide the fucking Nintendo behind the tv right because the old man had come in to watch the hockey game and he'd see that fucking light on on, on the nintendo <laughs> goddamn kids wasting power you know oh, and he'd go and he'd wasting shut, power. He'd fucking shut your game off after you you come home from school you're fucking stoked you're like old man's on swing shift you're like nothing can stop me from eating pizza pockets and fucking coke and beating this game for eight out you know man then you come in and it's like that your whole fucking world at 15 just stops because you walk in the door and you're all fucking stoked. You got your chips and shit. And you look down at your Nintendo and the fucking light is off. And it's like you already know in your head what happened. You want to cuss your dad out and shit, you know, but you don't say nothing, man. You're just like, oh. It's, 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 it's one of those hard ones because, like, honestly, like. <laughs> but I, is it I, worth I, taking a swat from the old man to tell him he's an asshole? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> Nah, but it's so cool, man. It's so cool that you're like able to go back like that because this is like the foundation that creates the character that is Trev. Um, so yeah. you said you were getting into like talent shows or something, uh, or somewhere around nine. You signed up to a school or, or something. I forgot what it nah, was. Nah, drum corps, man. They call it right. back then. They called it drum corps. If if you were to look today and look back at it, most most people would call it like band camp just because of the movie, right? But the base of this was. Uh, I started this in 1986. I was nine years old in 86 or something like that. Wow, I just gave half the world my age. Way to go. Um, I was, I was, oh it's, it's all good. So you aged gracefully, started, my guy. You're aging gracefully like a motherfucker. It's, it's the cannabis, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so I started, I was nine years old. And it was funny because the, the whole organ, drum corps organization, which was uh, nationwide, you know, the rules were that you had to be, it was 12 to 21 was the age category. But my mom, God bless her, especially if she's watching today, she probably is. Shout out. You know, my mom's a, she's a slick talker. Like she's, she's a slick talker like me. So, you know, they were like, look, my, my older son's going in. My younger son, he's so full of youth and he, and he loves to entertain and you really want to have him. So she convinced him to take me at nine. Now this, this had, benefits it also could be disastrous man back in the 80s you know, times were a lot different there were no cell phones you know we even barely had cameras that we took around like film cameras and shit shit was too expensive to have the film develop so we did some shit you know and i was nine touring around 
Okay, so let me give you a, a, a more of a more of a base of what this is. So, up to 128 teenagers from the ages of 12 to 21 join an individual drum corps. You know, everyone's got their own name, their own corps, their own band, and then through the entire winter up through spring, you spend every weekend. And like two nights a week, you do practice. You're practicing how to play musical instruments. You're learning how to like march and formation and all this shit. And, you know, growing as a friend and growing, growing as a group, right? But come summer, the last day of school, while everybody's screwing around for summer, we were getting on tour buses, right? All these teenagers, we'd pile onto these tour buses and then we'd travel across Canada and the United States, stopping here, there, and we'd put on a competition between all these different drum corps. So, I, I, I and we pause do it. you for one second. What's a drum yeah. corps? Is it just a, a marching band? It's yeah. For lack of better terms, it's a marching band. The only thing that separated a drum corps from a marching band was a drum corps didn't have any wood instruments. So no saxophones, no flutes in the pussy, no fucking shit. Like it was all just brass musical instruments and drums, mm. right? No, no woodward woodwind instruments as they're called i know man it's silly but no so I, I don't find it silly i love these distinctions i really think it's cool that you're making them like i think it's fucking cool that you're somehow touring at like fucking nine years old and i'm like killing myself nine. trying to tour in my 30s you know like i'm like that's <laughs> fucking cool that's what i'm hearing so we we travel around like from state to state or province to province and every couple of days we'd stop in a state Right. And we would stay at a, at a at a high school or something because it's summer. So. Right. So we'd all sleep in a big gym together every morning. You get up and you hit the, the football field with your instruments and they make it. I mean, it's such intricate movement between 128 kids playing musical instruments while creating formations that are moving across an entire field. It's actually, it takes a lot of work and it's actually really physical. You're standing in the sun all day at a young age holding up a musical instrument, you, you know, play? giving it 90. I'm a drummer, bro. I, I strapped on a, they were called quads. So I wear a harness and then there's five drums out in front of me. So you're playing like back and forth all the time while marching. <laughs> That's probably why I had back surgery at 20, you know, in retrospect. But no, I'm so we'd, we'd travel around and you'd stop and you'd do a 12 minute performance. So you perform like four different, you know, uh, four different songs through the musical instrument, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of the night, all the cores would take the field and we'd all get judged. You'd get a score and that's it. Back on the fucking bus and you're off. To, so it's like that you know, Nick Cannon movie. It's, it's drumline. Hundred fucking thousand percent. You couldn't, it, it couldn't be portrayed any better. Like Bandcamp was a bit of a fetch, but drumline was legit what it was really all about. Right. And so we'd do this all summer and you'd meet all of these kids from all these other drum corps. So like 128 kids per drum corps, 12 to 15 drum corps per competition. You got like fucking 1500 teenagers all running around together, mixing and mingling from different fucking cultures, different parts of the world, different languages, different races, different, different everything, man, but all brought together for one passion and one love of music. And some drum corps would do jazz and some drum corps would do military music and some would do uh, big band and fan music and all this stuff. And so I did this from the time I was nine years old, right up until I was 20. 
Even oh, with shit. all the other shit you're going to pick my brain about and all the weird shit, the, the real memories and the real, the people from my neighborhood that know me a bit more of a badass never knew that every summer, you know, that badass from the hood was taken off on a bus and going to play in a band camp drum corps with a bunch of band nerds. And this was, this was, this was my real passion. Right. And so that really brought me around musically to be an entertainer, to want to just, you know, always be in the spotlight and always want to be right there making people smile, you know, whether it's doing something goofy or doing something talented or just something to make people smile all in all. I mean, I've never had a music career, so I don't really know what it's like to be on stage and, and you know, have people just cheering your name and shit like that. But I mean, I've sat at the front of a football field and I've played for 27,000 people, you know, and got a standing ovation after. And I mean, it's that different, to be honest. I I, I don't don't know if it would, to be honest, but I mean, maybe maybe if they were saying my name more. okay, okay, that part might be a little better, but that's it. Otherwise, it's kind of like the same vibe. Just love. Yeah, it was it was such a cool feeling. I mean, my life took a different direction when I was 20. I should have, in retrospect, if I'd known what I know now, I would have pursued a, a way different life path. But, um, you know, I, looking back, music played such a huge part in the harmony of my life, you know, and, and opening up me up socially and opening up my social shelf. Anybody that can put on a band uniform and a shako and dance in front of 27,000 people, you know, generally isn't going to have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, embarrassing moments in his life. <laughs> Or at least um, you're willing to put yourself through the whatever for the bigger benefit or the bigger purpose of it all. So that's big respect yeah. to us. Man, I don't know how many people knew that you did that, but that sounds Not many, like, but it's out there now. <laughs> so, like, it sounds like it was like a giant party across North America that you would throw and be a part of every summer. Every single summer. And, of course, when I was young, I'd watch all the older kids, and I wasn't allowed to, you know, partake i watched these they they you know i was like that little squirt that was always trying to hang around so they get me to do some really quirky goofy shit you know when we'd be out of town and stuff you know and it 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 really opened me up but when i was like 15 16 and traveling the united states with 15 1600 other teenagers these were some life experiences and and that really helped people grow looking back you know it was it was a lot more that there's a lot of stuff I wouldn't be able to say on camera that happened during those times. Man. <laughs> I'll say this. If my boy, Mike Chatterton's watching, shout out to my boy, Mike, shout out to my boy, Jeremy Goldie. Cause I know they both watch my other show. Uh, we were talking once the other day, we said, where's the, the most unique and memorable place you ever got high. Mm. And it was I funny because post. all, yeah, all three of us said the same thing. It was in uh, Iverwind stadium in Buffalo. I think we were 16 years old. We bought what they called a three finger bag in Buffalo. I didn't know what the fuck that was for 30 bucks kid. And the kid was like 13. We were only 15. It wasn't a big deal, but the weed was probably the most chronic we'd ever, ever gotten. And we traveled all around the United States and, and Canada. So, you know, it was a bold statement. So we walked up to the very top. And now when you're, when you're performing at drum corps, right? Picture a stadium, a, a football field right? Look at the 50 yard line and we're facing one way, right? So everything on the other side of the field is empty. There's nobody watching from there because we're playing towards the crowd. 
Right. <clears throat> so all the juveniles like myself and my homeboys and shit, we would, we would go hang out on the other side of the stadium. Cause like there, you know, the chaperones wouldn't give you shit for leaving the stadium. You know, you could still chat with your boys from other, other drum corps and shit without having to talk over the music and shit. So we'd walked all the way to the top of Iverwind stadium. And if you've never been in an NFL stadium, man, let me tell you, walking to the top, the tip top, the nosebleeds is that's some hike, man. And so we got up there and we rolled up a bunch of fatties and sat up there. And we burned, we burned up there because we figured everybody on the other side can see us burning. So that's kind of fucking funny. And then we kept thinking, well, if anybody comes up, that's a hell of a hike for them to come up and get us before we can toss the fucking dude, right? But my boy Mike Chatterton, here you go. Shout out to my boy Mike. So we're trying to walk down the stairs to come back after we're high. We're so high though, bro. And the stairs seem so steep that we stopped and we took a break. And uh, they had these. Uh, they had an American flag, a Canadian flag. I'm pretty sure it was it was a Quebec flag or a Chinese flag. I can't remember, bro. But these were huge. They covered uh, like fifteen rows of seats and like went over like an entire section, right? My boy, Mike, so we're sitting right next to these flags, trying to catch our breath by walking down. My boy, Mike, goes behind the American flag, drops his fucking drawers, and, like, moons the entire fucking stadium with his ass pressed up against the American flag. (laughs) And we were, like, dying, man. And and we saw this on the video, like, well, it was, like, eight months later, one of those parents, you know, that was always camcording and shit. She brought it, and you can legit see my boy going behind the American flag, like pulling his ass out and shit. So, there's some wild times back in drum corps, but uh, a lot of shit we probably won't talk about today. <laughs> no, I wasn't even expecting that. I was just letting you go because that was a serious story. Um, I don't want you to go incriminating people on cam. You can incriminate them off cam and let me know what happened then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, uh, no, that's serious. So that's like a lot of high school. I guess that took up a lot of your free time then because you're basically heavily involved in this. And then where where are you from though in Ontario? We didn't really establish that. You said you went to Mississauga, so I, or I think you said that. So that means you weren't – are you from a smaller town or are you from where? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I was born in Scarborough, but I grew up in Whippy. I was in Whippy from the time I was – I really can remember until I was – 21 21 is when i finally left had the courage to leave small town i felt you know for anybody who lived in a small town you know what it's like you either have two inclinations you you're you're ambitious and you're going to leave that small town when you're young or you're like you feel anchored to it and you're never going to leave and i remember looking at people like around my neighborhood you know that i grew up with like like grew up and they were already part of the neighborhood you know it was like I was like 15 then turned in 18 and then 19 and it was like same people same houses same shit same drama same you know nothing had changed in like 19 years you know and i was like i can't be a part of this much longer this is crazy you know this is this is what i'm not built for this small town life kind of thing and i i was 21 or 20 when i finally packed up and moved to downtown toronto which at that time, I don't suggest it anymore, but at that time when Toronto was a lot safer, you know, I think everybody should have experienced the first bit of their 20s, you know, in a major metropolitan center, man. 
the culture, the everything that you get exposed to is so imperative in your journeys in life. I feel, I feel like being in a small town is so sheltered. So when I got to Toronto, it was, it was eye-opening. It was culturing. It was, I never wanted to leave. Mm. Right. But since then I've been everywhere, bro. Now I'm, now I'm in small town Coburg, <laughs> you know? Oh, but that's super dope. So basically what happens when you get to Toronto, what is a young Trev Jones up to? Oh man. So for anybody watching this, I apologize in advance. Um, and for my family, you know, sorry. <laughs> um, it's no secret. Actually. I talk about it very openly these days because uh, I like to inspire and encourage people. Um, as you know, I'm a healer and an educator, um, by trade talking about my past. Um, I was troubled, man. I was, I was, I was on a path of destruction coming into my late teens. Um, and Toronto as culturing as it was, you know, offered a lot of fuel to that fire. Mm. And so, you know, I got a little crazy and I got a little wild, definitely dabbled on the other side of the law, um, got in trouble a few times for sure. So the story goes, you know, I originally moved to Toronto, um, to get away from, we all have that story running from that one X, you know, just no matter where you go in the town, something to always remind you. So I kind of like took a leap of faith and I packed everything up and I, and I went to Toronto like with nothing, my car, a couple garbage bags full of clothes. Um, you know, and I think probably like 600 bucks in my pocket if I was even lucky. And the only person I knew in TDOT was my real brother's roommate who was like this openly gay guy who lived in the, the gay ghetto of Toronto. And he was like, he was a drum corps guy. That's how I met him. He was a drum corps instructor from when I was a kid. And so I reached out to him and I was like, Hey man, you know, like I really need to get a fresh start. Like I'm out in TDOT. I don't know where to go. And he was like, yeah, yeah. you know, come by the house? He's very good friends with my mom, you know, like very safe, very I, I knew I'd be safe with this guy. And so he showed me the ropes of downtown Toronto and the ins and outs and the underbelly and, um, so I got involved, uh, <laughs> I, I, I got involved in a business that, that was borderline legal, borderline illegal. Um, I tried to open a, a very legal and a very legitimate, uh, escort agency at the time. Mm. Um, but you know, it wasn't quite as acceptable back <laughs> then as it was today. And, uh, I got myself, I got myself in some trouble and became a, a guest of the province, um, for for a good time good chunk of time <laughs> you know just under a year i was gone and it gave me a long time to contemplate my life and what i wanted to do next and i knew that this wasn't it you know being being as open and creative as i was locking me up you know in a four by six you know for so long and them trying to you know tell you what you're going to do and what you're going to eat and how you can think and when you can talk geez right down to when you can piss and take a shit you know, and I was like, this is not going to be the fucking life for me. You know, this, this, I loved, I loved the high pace of that side of life, but you know, the end result where I was became a real reality and really quick, you know, you never think it's going to happen when you're rolling like that. And then, you know, everything's gone and you're sitting there and you're four by six and you've got nothing but your thoughts, you know, and it's a lot of time to think and reflect. And I was, I was graceful enough to reflect in positivity and take what was going on around me and, and reflect and say, you know, this isn't something I want to be like. This isn't me. I'm not going to live. I'm not going to live like this. You know, I'm going to do better things with myself than this. 
So once I got out, you know, it was, it was change of pace, get out of Toronto, you know, go, go somewhere where I couldn't get in so much trouble. <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> that bring you up to speed a bit. <laughs> so where did, where did you end up uh, after Toronto? Ironically, man, I got out of Toronto. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I hadn't had a lot of contact with my dad because my dad was a British Navy officer. So he was like super, super strict, you know? And so when I was running around like an idiot, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of contact with my dad. But when I got when I got back out on the street and looking for somewhere to go and something to do, my dad was getting married like two weeks after I got out in a little town called Belleville. I'd never heard of this place, man. I was like, all right. So I show up in Belleville. I got a, I got a hotel room for the weekend for my dad's wedding gig. And uh, I reconnected with my not like my, my, my stepmom, her nephew, who when I met, he was like five years old or six years old. He was just a little shit. But now he was like this grown up wannabe street gangster kid, you know? And so he plopped up into my, into my hotel room and he was like, Hey man, you know, I've been kind of keeping up with what you've been doing with yourself. You know, why don't you move to, uh, why don't you move out here to Belleville with me? You know, and we'll kick it and we'll see what we can get going. And I was like, I didn't really have any other options. I was like, fuck else am I going to do? You know, this seemed like I could dabble my feet without getting too wet. You know what I mean? So I came out to, I came out to Belleville where I ended up staying for shit, 10 years. Mm. And I got to tell you, man, I went to, I went to Belleville to get away from crazy Toronto life. You know, and it was ironic because when I got to Belleville, it was a crazier life than I'd ever had in Toronto. Make no mistake, man. Belleville's only like 49,000 people or something like that. But it's like 48,000 badasses in Belleville, man. That's so the whole It is, bro. I, I'll tell you, man, like just to give you, I know you're going to ask me a gazillion questions about everything I just dropped. But well, I mean, the one you, part I can say is... I know what Belleville is. I've been there one time because I went to Loyalist College to go, not for ah. anything other than cadets, because one oh, of the shit. cadets things happens every summer, the introduction to aviation course. So I spent three weeks in Loyalist College near Belleville. And what I can tell you is it's a military town, if I'm not mistaken, because there's a base nearby. Yeah. Uh, Trenton, which is right next door, has one of Canada's biggest uh, air bases. Right. Yeah. And Loyalist College is literally smack in between um, Belleville and, and uh, Trenton. Yeah, so cool. Loyalist. I love it, man. Like, that was one of my favorite moments. I, I have the best memories of that part of town. It's funny because uh, Loyalist is where I met Classified and, uh, and Shaw Claire for the very first time, man. I never even That's heard it. of these cats. Went down and saw them, met, met Class on his tour bus, sold him a, sold him a quarter of weed. <laughs> the rest is fucking history. I've been in two of his videos. Shocks is my personal wow. friend. But... That's like so yeah, fucking Belleville, cool. Belleville was nuts though, man. Because Just to give the people a perspective that are like, ah, oh, Belleville. Belleville had 49,000 people. And in 2013 <laughs> in Belleville, was it 2013 or 2012? I'd have to look to be sure. But there were 14 separate violent murders in Belleville which put them in like the third most dangerous um, city in all of Canada per capita. But if you do the math, I know you're a math guy like me. 
Yeah. So 14 violent murders and 49,000 people. That means you had like a one in fucking 3,100 chance of getting fucking whacked. <laughs> I was like, yo. I said, this is worse than Toronto, man. I should probably get the fuck up out of here too. No, for real. It is definitely a serious. So I got distracted. He, he mentioned the shark tank and I'm like, oh my fucking God, I know what that is. I've been at the shark tank because we were there. That is so fucking cool that you met classified at that place. And like, yeah, fuck man. Like, I'm, and then pivoted to heavy murder rates and per capita. That's actually a pretty staggering number. That's pretty scary. And I yeah. would not actually consider like you wouldn't really think about it like that, but it, you're not the first person I've talked to from what I'm, I don't know. I call it small town Ontario. I don't know what else to yeah. describe this phenomenon, but. Uh, you nailed not, it, man. You're not the first person to describe that it's, let's say, actually more rough than, say, the city vibes that I'm used to. Because I'm Montreal, like, all the way through it, right? Um, and I'm not going to downplay that Montreal has its things, but Montreal does not have its things quite like that, quite to the same degree where I come from, where I grew up, my realities, you know, like it wasn't that at all, but it sounds like in a small town because of it's like small towniness, there is no like avoiding things. You're just there. Like you're like, how do you do it? Like how, like you're, I live in NDG. It's 150,000 people. That's just one suburb of Montreal. That is three times the size of what you just described. Yeah, it's, you know, they had a saying in Belleville, and it was so true. In Belleville, you're doing one of three things, man. You're fucked, you fight, or you hold the light. And that's what they always said, man, and it, it was true. If you go to the roots, you're like me, man. I like history. I like to dig. I like to know shit. I smoke weed, and I like to know shit. That's my that, shit. Actually, that is my shit. So I, <laughs> wow, me too, man. And, I, and I, I'm sitting in this town for about three years, and I'm thinking, why the fuck is this place so fucked up? And so I started looking into it. It comes from a mining and a, and a port background, right? So when you dig back into the roots and you go back to it being a mining community and a, and a shipping port community, you know, so morals and values and family values are very low. You know, there were a lot of split and broken homes like way back where, when that whole city originated from, from all of the, the history. And it was amazing to see how that carried from generation to generation to generation. You know, I'm, I was looking back at uh, statistics from the 20s and the 30s from Belleville, and it was, it was like, holy fuck. You know, and then you look at, at 2012 and these all these murders. And I'll, I'll tell you this, and this is no secret, and I know I got a lot of Belleville fans that watch and support, and they'll tell you straight, man. There were two nightclubs in Belleville. Uh, one was called Matt and Joe's, and one was called Little Texas. I think Little Texas is still there. I know Matt and Joe's is closed. But they used to do like a, a, a thing at, at Matt and Joe's on Thursday nights and then a thing at Little Texas on Friday, a thing on Saturday and a thing on Sunday back and forth. And because it's so small town, anybody who was anybody, you know, was out at these clubs from, from right. 10 p.m. right through to 3 a.m. in the morning, right? And at the end of every night, every Thursday, every Friday, every Saturday, every Sunday, there would be full-size parking lot fistfights. And I mean like seven on seven, 10 on 10, 12 on 12. And then you'd think one fight would be over and then you'd turn around and there'd be a blasting fucking full-blown fight going on behind you. So you were like one of these people that was either sitting there eating popcorn, like this was your fucking nightly entertainment, which trust, man, it was entertaining. Or you were, you were in these fights 
that were going on all the time. And it sounds brutal, but there was something really sporty about it with these with the with the town. Like they get into fucking fights, but then they just get up and walk away, you know, and then two days later you'd see these same guys drinking in a house together, you know, split heads open and they'd be like, Yeah, man, it was a good fucking fight. You know, and they at the backyard brawls, they'd set up they'd set up you go to houses, like you go to a party, man, and like mid party, everybody's like, Fuck yeah, you know, and strapping on fucking gloves and they're busting out the chalkboard and you know, who's fighting who tonight? And they'd set up the backyards to be like backyard fucking, you know, not bare knuckle. They got the gloves on and shit. But you go to the, like, the, the whole city was like violent as hell. It was like, there was everywhere you went, even if you tried to avoid it. You know, it was it was just there all the time. Elville was a hell of a violent city, man. Yo, that's serious. So it's, it, like, yeah, just... it didn't do much to get away from the craziness, you know? I didn't even know where this interview was going to go because you can't Google most people that I know, as in you can Google them, but good luck trying to find useful story life information. But that's what we really do here is we walk through people's stories because we never know where it's going to go and all of that. But firstly, shout out Ginny G123 on the follow because that's real, real cool. I just don't want to cut off Trev. And yo, I appreciate our sailor, um, which is kind of pointing out it's safer now. As much as it's cool to talk about the past, like, yo, Montreal, apparently, like, where I'm living right now, 30 years ago, you would not be living here if you look like me, as well, you know? And now it's, like, it's a completely different vibe and a completely different energy. But also, when I talk to other people, right, and I don't know their past, and I didn't know necessarily what it used to be like in certain neighborhoods, it's like you don't appreciate why they may have certain mannerisms or ideologies or certain things. So like getting that context that this might be a more prevalent thing as I deal with more people in Ontario. Like I, I didn't know how little I knew about Ontario until I started talking, um, you know, just, just talking to people, you know, like I just didn't know that. And then I started Ontario's learning more. Fucked up, man. Like, <laughs> it's just a whole different up, vibe bro. than Quebec. Like I was thinking like, I don't really know what the fuck Canada is because I don't really know that I'm fully like ingratiated into Canada. I'm I'm a Montrealer in Quebec. It's a whole different world. Yeah, I've never I, I've never I've been out your way maybe twice, and both times I was there for uh for an education course, man. So I was in a class all week. I didn't even get to check the city out. I've never seen the nightlife out there. I've always been. It was always a thing when we were growing up too, because Montreal was like where it was at. You know, no, you know, not to stereotype, but they're always talking about your guys' strip joints, right? So when you were like 19, 20, and they're like, yo, what should we do? What should we do? Y'all take take a weekend trip to Montreal. Montreal's where it's at. Is that really a thing? Y'all like I swear to God, bro. Clubs? Yeah, no joke, man. Uh, no joke. When I was at least all the way through my 20s, it was always a hype thing, no matter what city I was in, man. You know, people talked about Montreal like, like it was the Las Vegas of fucking Canada. You know, if That's you went to Montreal, you were getting fucking laid. If you were going to Montreal, you were getting the best fucking dope. Bikers, that's where the bikers are all from Montreal. You know, you go to you go to Montreal, you might get your head bopped off by a biker, you know? Or you're, you're going to be... Yeah, no, I'm telling you, best strippers ever, biggest titties, you know? Like, the stories that we oh, talked 18 about... 18 is a big one. That one I knew about. 18 makes a lot of sense. That one, yeah. yeah we do drink at 18, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, Reed's 21, you know so <laughs> it's probably the better motherfucker. To... How y'all get the Coors Light Cube? I mean, I don't even drink anymore, so I don't give a shit. Coors Light Cube. I don't even know. I don't know, man. But my friends, they go to Quebec. 
and they come back with this 60 pack of cans. Oh, okay. You can only get it in Quebec or some shit, man. You can't get that shit here. Oh, that looks so nifty. Okay, I see yeah. that shit. Yeah. It's called the cube or something oh, like that. Oh, because Ice Cube's involved in it. So it's the cube because of Ice Cube. All right, all right. Okay, now you're all like, I can't see it. That's what I Googled, everyone. Now you can see it. Okay. Uh, I'm not really a big beer drinker, but there's like a huge beer culture here. Like, motherfuckers be all up in them low-end beers, big-end beers, the ones that they do at the bars, the drafts. The, I don't know my beer shit, okay? IPAs, I think, is a word that's popping up in our towns. I don't know beers sure. like that, but I know that, like, they can basically fucking put beers in magical size giant ass boxes in his house party fodder in montreal and there is a huge house party scene like especially in places like the west island where there is like six bars for like the whole fucking thing or whatever right or i think like it's illegal to have bars in verdun like you just can't over some shit so in places like that you're not left with a lot of options so they basically realized we could just make like the 99 pack and they'll buy it so they do. I would in a minute, man. I'm like, I'm, I'm you. I don't drink a lot of beer anymore. I'm stuck on these like girly coolers. If I'm going to have a drink. I'm like one of these, these fucking berry, berry blast or, or blue. Uh, no, that's the shit though. Trees, They're, the delicious. They're delicious. They're delicious. I love my friends. eh? like my, my manly friends. And that, you know, they're always like, Oh yeah, that's fucking cool. You know, get your bitch drink on and all this. And I'm like, listen, man, at the end of the day, it tastes fucking, I'm not drinking one now. This is actually just me over it. It tastes fucking good, you know, and I'm going to get drunk in two of them at these 7% shit. You're going to drink 12 of these yeast hop infested bloaty ass fucking things. And you want to talk about which one of us is smarter or more manly? Come on, man. <laughs> Yo, I think it's because like there's a learning curve to, to beer. Like a lot of people, and again, I have the beer conversation way more in my life than you would think as a person who says i don't like beer so you get the justifications for it and people always say this shit to me if you learn to like it upon that's a bad starting point for me yeah for <laughs> real <laughs> if you learn to like it you're going to love it and i'm like i like rum and coke already <laughs> i already like rum and coke it's like how are you gonna hate on a rum and coke you know <laughs> i'm just i'm still on the i'm like if you ever if you learn to like it i'm like man I, i'm i'm elder i get this all the time you know my mom god bless you mom if you're watching my mom says the same dumb shit to me for the last 35 years of my life man she'll say shit like you know you need to try it when you're a little older come back and visit it when you're older you might like that you know so We'll be, I go to my mom's, I haven't seen her since September, fucking COVID. But we go to my mom's, right? My mom, she was a pastry chef when we were growing up. And so she's like, she's really creative in the kitchen, right? Like even with regular food, my mom's super creative. And I'm not. Like I'm the, I'm the plainest motherfucker, man. I'm a steak, potato, beans. We're good. My people. Pork chops, broccoli, fucking rice. I'm good. <laughs> You know, like white rice too. Don't even, don't even put shit in the rice. I'm good, man. You know, mm, I do my, like to hear rice and peas. My ideal lunch is two pieces of fucking ham, one piece of cheese on plain white bread, man. No butter, no mustard, no, no. This is how plain I eat, right? So I'll be like, 
in my forties and my mom will come over, I'll go over to my mom's and she'll have some shit I can't even pronounce and doesn't even look appetizing. And she'll be like, no, try this. You know, you'll like it now that you're older. And I'm always like, no, I'm old enough that I know what I like. <laughs> I'm just going to stay on the fucking path I'm on. You know? Yo, I swear. I swear I hear you on that. Or my, this one's from my girlfriend. Wouldn't it be nice? I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be nice. Sometimes the wouldn't it be nice is going directions. When they're involved in food and shit, they're usually like, nah, I'm good, man. I like the, yo, I tell people with all dead assness, yo, I could eat chicken like every day. Let's say like six days a week, throw in some whatever, maybe a five to two split of beef and chicken, mostly chicken good throw in some pasta here and there a few veggies here and there like really whatever nutritionally gives me the math i need to like function smoothies that's fruit shit all right we got fruit shit i can vary it up so simple don't have to think repeat less decision making in my life move on let the food be simple unless you make it and if you make it i'll eat it (laughs) see my wife my wife doesn't, uh, I cook for my house. So she gets it. If she wants to like spice it up and shit, I give it to her the way that I make it. There's spices, there's everything she could need to make things, you know, a little bit spicier for herself. But she knows if I'm cooking it, man, you know, black pepper is like the extent. <laughs> I'm keeping it plain, you know? <laughs> I respect that you're a man who knows. I respect that you even just said, I know what I like. Leave me alone and let me be everyone. I'm old enough to know better. I did it. I lived long enough to hit this old enough period you're supposed to get to, which is not defined except that. (laughs) That's funny because it happens to everyone. I bet everybody watching has had that moment happen to them where somebody way older has said that and they're like, nah, I achieved old enough. All right. So you're around uh, Belleville for a minute. I don't know what else you're up to. I don't know what you're doing up in that part of life. You're just being a person, doing your things. Um, I I don't know what comes next. What comes after Belleville? Where do you go after that? Well, I'll, I won't get right. into any detail, but I'll say I out of all the places I've been and, and being a guest of the province and some of the nastiest places, uh, a pivot, the pivot, most pivotal turning point in my life, which really defines and changes everything like the real moment that it all changed we went to an after hours party me and me and a me and a real good friend and it was a setup and there was there was some horrific violence took place and everybody was good after but i woke up that morning and it was like that's it like never again will i be in this position for to even be around it and I left, I left Belleville on a whim. I went back to my hometown. I stayed with a drum corps friend, someone I've known for 30 something years, you know, that, and that, that was the bond drum corps people have. It's like, you call them on the fucking phone and, and they're there. And I was like, look, I got to get out of here, man. And so I flashed out and it took about three months for me to really transition and change the phone numbers and drop the contacts and define who was really your friend and who was just part of that life that you held on to. Oh, yo, that's the biggest thing you said just there. When you evolve, well, also, because you can yeah. generalize it, when you evolve to decide who is actually your friend and who is just in that whirlwind of circumstances that existed around you. Because I think, and I say that as like double it down because I find sometimes people think they're friends, but they're, they're not actually friends. I'll do you one deeper because I was starting to study Buddhism 
I found I found an enlightenment to myself in Buddhism that like there was this this part of me that had always been there, you know, that was probably just screaming to fucking be a way of life for me. But I was so wrapped up in that reputation. We need a, you know, need the flex all the time. Blah blah. Fuck. I need that car. I need that chain. Bullshit. All the bullshit dreams that they fucking tell you you should chase, you know. And there was this this part of me this inner peace that was just fucking longing to get out. And so when I was transitioning, I, like you said, the deepest part about when you're deciding who's your friend and who's not, I'll let this one marinate with you too, bro, is you sit and you think, and you look at these friends and, and as you like, you know, we do this so much, you know, all the time. I challenge anybody to do that in your fucking contact list, pull up your contact list and fucking do that. And, and just take a quick glance at every person that you go by. If you're anything like, like myself, I get flooded with a gazillion memories in fractions of a second, just looking at their name. And so I looked and I'm like, you, know, you, you don't need to be a part of my new life. You know, this, this, this. And you stop at some people though. And you think, you think that they're, they're so deep in that life that, that you need to get away. But then you ask yourself, if you can change, why can't I bring them along to change with me? Mm. You know, and, it, and, and to quote a really good friend of mine, you know, you can't soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by turkeys. Right. And yeah. I think about that a lot, as funny as fucking shit as it is. And it's a cool little saying, but you know, I, I speak metaphorically to my friends all the fucking time. I think deep, you know, and I try to give passive messages to people, but you know, when you think about that on a level, there's also that, that inside you that wants to say, well, like maybe some of these turkeys ain't been given a chance to be an eagle yet either. Right. So you get, you struggle with, with, mm. you know, changing your life so pivotably, but while enlightening yourself, you're thinking those people that you really care about that are in that, that other life that you don't want to be a part of anymore. Do you take them with you? You it's, put that effort in to say, look, really, you've um... got to check this out, man. Listen, this isn't for us. I know you're, I know you're not like that. Come with me, come with me. Right. And where do you give up and say, no, fuck, maybe they're not. And that was a huge, huge struggle for my life for the first year of, of actually you know, studying Buddhism and, and, and taking that major change of life was drawing a line in the sand and saying, how, how much effort do I put in to save those friends of mine that, you know, I want, I want them to see what I see right here, you know, and that's putting it really lightly for such an in-depth, deep mental state that yeah. I was going through at that yeah, time. I, I really, it resonates a lot with me because in the last couple of years, my whole world has changed. It's not what it used to be. My priorities are no longer what they were. Um, I know I can come off like a pompous asshole, but a lot of it is because I'm trying to play this character as, you know, I'm, I'm an entertainer. It is what it is. But like on the real. Yeah, we're on like, screen. It's different. <laughs> but like, like off cam, man, I'm a lot more meek. Like I'm a really paranoid a little bit because like, how do you siphon through the intentions of people? And then like you said, like, so you come across somebody and you think they're really interesting. And then you see they're living like a way that you maybe don't fully subscribe to or align with or and it's not a judgy thing i just know that there's certain yeah. environments that i don't think i could do well as in 
I would fuck up. I would do one of those things you're not supposed to do. And I would fuck it up. So I try not to be like that because I don't have, like, the skill to navigate these worlds. Um, but then you look at other people, and I look at it, like, equated to, like, I want to make real, real money. I don't want to make small money. And it's like, how do you explain to people how to make real, real money once you've seen the light? Once you see kind of, like, that, like, bigger picture of where things can be at? How do you go back and, like, explain, like, yo, maybe that's not it? How much of your time and effort to put into an individual knowing that everyone's ultimately going to just do what they want regardless of what makes sense to you, to me? Like, because I know it makes sense to me. Uh, so when sure. I hear what you're saying, it resonates a lot with me because, yo, that's, like... <laughs> That's my day and now. That's today for me. So it's cool right. that you bring it like that because I don't know how to make that distinction. But I know that you learn. I feel like you, you find it within yourself and where your own boundaries are and that there is no like globalization for it unless you have a globalized I, wisdom to it because you might. I feel like, I feel like growing up, I, I try to rationalize it like to myself like this. A lot of my, my loved ones say to me all the time, why do you still... Why are you still trying to help that guy? Why are you trying to still help that girl? You know, should have gave up a long time ago. And I and I, I can't explain to them enough. And my own mother and my aunt, if they're both watching, will will vouch and say, you know, there was a time in my life where everybody had given up on me. Okay. You know, there was there was there was no one there except my mom. God bless. Um, you know, and and society, general society, especially as a small town, you know, you get a reputation real quick. You know, I, 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 my, I did my first, like, you know, YO stint when I was 15 years old and, and, and evolved a weapon. Is YO so a youth you, offender? Is that what that means? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you're young, you know, and you're, and you're in a small town like that and you do something as drastic as, as it was, you know, word spreads quick, you know, and then when you continue on that path all the way till you leave the small town, you know, you, you've earned that reputation. You, you know, your lost cause. There's no hope for him. He's a fucking, he's this, he's that. Yo, all you're speaking on some big shit right now. So when you fast forward now to my life, you know, to where I made that transition, you know, and the, and the irony is that I went back to my hometown and stayed with one of my friends who knew me from time I was starting to, to bang my first drum to when I was getting my first set of bracelets you know and taken out of my family home you know and they've seen my whole life you know they've been a part of the whole thing you know and for them to watch that transition in my hometown so that that was really ironic to look back but now i look and i say to people all the time you i can't just give up i'm the poster child for people can truly change you know they say once you're a criminal you're always a criminal once a criminal record, you'll never get away from it. You know, a lot of people, when they, when they make the change that I made, they try to hide from their criminal record and they'll hide it. I had no choice but to embrace it and use it as part of my educational platform to try to inspire, especially the younger generations that I work with and say, you know, like, let me tell you this, you know, I'm not your dad. I'm not your fucking uncle. I'm not your brother. I'm just telling you because I've been there. And I'm going to say, if I can save you 10 years of heartache by sharing my experience with you, you know, tell you that that fucking chain you're chasing, that, that fast ass car and all that shit, you know, this is, this is what they make it look like on TV and then fucking videos. And yeah, that's great. And all that you want to flex, but at the end, 
you know, there's only like a handful out of a gazillion guys who tried to live that life who make it in the end, you know, and the struggles to get there, the loss of family, the loss of ties, you know, the violence I've seen and been exposed to, you know, if, if when I share that with people in the depths of, yeah, this is my criminal record. I ain't been in trouble in like 12, 15 years or some shit. I, mean, I lost count, but, you know, I share it openly instead of hide it. Because that way you can you can be some kind of inspiration. Don't try to be a fucking hypocrite. You know, don't try to fucking say, you know, I've all changed and this is all great and try to pretend that you weren't something that you were back in the day. You know, I was that guy. That shit that people talk about back in Whitby, that asshole, that fucking meathead. Yeah, that all that shit's true. Right? It's just not the person that stands here before you today. That journey that I've taken to get here, you know. But to, to try and deny the past or pretend it didn't exist or that that criminal record isn't there, you know, that's, that's just being fraud. And, and that's, no, that's no way to be inspirational to anybody else or help anybody motivate to become, you know, to, to say that that's not the only way of life. You know, that's not it, bro. There's more to it. You know, you got to find that transitional point within yourself and, and move it, right? Yo, that's a lot of things that I philosophically align with that you just said that are like really huge. When did you start your educational platform? I don't know a lot about that, but like what you just said, a lot of people need to hear, I think, especially that people don't change things. It's a huge narrative. I call it like it's like baked into this uh, middle class normative perception of life that's propagated by media, this, that, excuse this, whatever, whatever. But it's like a real thing where like, People who get that like criminal label are, are legitimately shamed. I've seen it in quote unquote good company multiple times in my career, um, like the day job shit. So like the part yeah. where like people get stigmatized in a way, I can only imagine, especially the reputation thing. Like, yo, I made some fucking yeah. mistakes where I puked on my dick in 2011 in front of colleagues and then I puked again four years later. Done. To this day. Done. Motherfuckers like, yo, it's <laughs> over. Like. It doesn't matter what I did to, like, change it even. Like, to change that perception of not being, like, that rambunctious. Even though I Unless haven't... Unless you do something <clears throat> extremely pivotable. Yeah. Like, but you can. notice. I mean, like, you can do it within took yourself. Years. So it's, it took me, like, four to five years to, of not drinking at work events to be like, but look, I haven't even touched alcohol at the events in this many years. You know, all the different things like that. So it's, like, doable. But, like, it could take, like, five, six years to convince people that you've, like, actually, 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 like, evolved to a new point. Um, I'm like, yo, Trevor's, like, the slyest, man. Most people are just, like, 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 that was, like, six skills. Like, you do real Zoom calls. Like, you do fucking money Zoom call meetings with that fucking slick-ass mute fucking skills that you got going on right there. You like that? I did. That was slick. Dude, I've been doing shows now for a year and a half. I have learned how to slick it. Man, last week I burned my fucking hand on a live show. I grabbed this right here. For, for the folks that don't know, I'm, I'm very deep involved in the cannabis industry. We're going to get to that, obviously. Yeah, right here. yeah. Coming to that point. This is the warm-up part. But uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the tools and things and tricks of my trade. It's called an e-nail. This little thing in my hand right now is 740 degrees, and it, it keeps things to a hot temperature so I can continue to consume cannabis without any effort. Point being... I did a live show last week and five minutes into my show, I knocked this thing over and I instinctively fucking grabbed it with the, like the whole palm of my hand. 
So, oh yeah, man, you should have seen it. I somehow managed to keep the show going, wiping tears from my eyes while keeping the muted and talking and out, wrapped my hand in CBD, a whole shit ton of ice cubes, and then wrapped it with a dish, so, a dish towel and did another 55 minutes of the show. It's crazy, man. Bruh, <laughs> I commend that. Anyways, I, I'm a wimp for thank burning you. pain. Like the, the pain, because your pains are different. You can punch me, I can handle that pain. The pain of burning, that's a serious, like that's like this deep ethereal pain that doesn't go away. So big respect on that one. Um, I can't even wait to get into the cannabis part. It's so fucking, there's so many things I've been curious about as like an old timey smoker joint guy. But like for real, I want to hear about the educational thing because you're saying it like, when did that start? So you come out, you change, you decide to go on this like spiritual journey. Are you being like an educator the whole time though? Like, I don't know when that starts. Not at all. I didn't, um, on my spiritual journey, I, I changed, like I became a nine to five guy. And so mm. it was really tough for me to settle into something, you know, that was satisfying all around. And oddly enough, because most people at this, at the age I was, don't settle on this as a career, but I became an arborist. Um, for those that don't Can know, you describe what tree climber. Wait, what? Yeah, man, we st- we're the guys that fucking strap on all the gear and we climb fucking climb trees. And we cut trees down that start at the top, come all the way down. We're the crazy loons, man. We're the guys that we get in the bucket trucks and climb. Well, I never went around many hydro lines, but we do, you know, you climb up a tree sitting in between two houses that's 110 feet high, take all the branches down and fucking cut the tree down in pieces while strapped to the tree. What? (laughs) That's a career. And you're an arborist. a real career. You're an arborist. So it's an arborist. Because I figured yep. it was tree because arbor. Arborist yep. is a dude who does finagling up. So you're a professional tree climb cutter. Tree yeah. climber slash tree Professional cutter. tree arborist, yeah. So we climb trees, everything from, you know, deadwood hanging over houses from a storm to, you know, trees down on power lines to full trees down on houses to simple things like spring cleanups and you know, tree Hold dies, on. so you got to All are like and, the yeah. people that they call to deal with trees when they fuck up the power lines. <laughs> the power company calls us right away. When the whole city block of Toronto goes down, you get a fucking phone call at four in the morning that says, hey, man, strap on. We're going to work. <laughs> Yo, shout out all the arborists. Just shout you Honestly, out. shout out to all my arborist brothers and sisters because, uh, you know, here's a timbit for you, man. It's in the top 10 most dangerous jobs in the fucking world. I didn't even know. 275 people die every year in Canada from arborist-related accidents. And it's such oh, a shout pivotally... Shout out to all my brothers and sisters, man. And, like, there's a lot that is... Basically, we need specialized tree cutters in this regard um, because, like... Well, A, trees sometimes need to get removed, and B, trees sometimes get removed in ways we weren't expecting. Like, mm-hmm. y'all, I don't know if y'all remember when NDG got its microburst, and I guarantee you a lot of arborists are the people who fucking dealt with that situation because it was just tree Armageddon. <clears throat> it can get scary. I mean, I, I was called into a lot of high-risk situations. Um, generally, most guys don't start an arborist career in their 30s especially their late thirties, you know, it's, it's a dangerous ass job and it, and it takes a lot of skill. Um, I, I consider myself to be, you know, skilled in math, skilled in science. And I love like absolutely love physics, general physics and basic physics absolutely excites me. So tree climbing, 
you know, once you're in the tree, there's so much science and math and physics of where this is going to fall on how debating on what angle you cut this and is it going to hit this on the way down? And when it hits there, is it going to bounce onto something that's going to cause it? There's a lot of shit that goes into being an arborist. Hold up. So I you have this. to safely cut the tree so as to leverage the laws of basic physics and not yes. fuck up people's property and shit. Brother, I work downtown in, Le in downtown Toronto. There's a neighborhood called what? Leeside. Every house is worth at least a minimum of one point something and i know some of my tree boys are watching i know you are so shout out that this ain't no bullshit and we would go and we'd go to these houses multi-million dollar houses and there'd be these fucking hundred year old fucking oak trees you know that are completely like picture the house and this tree is just fucking completely over top of it and there's a crack in a fucking in a limb that's you know 114 inches in diameter and they're like, yo, you got to get up there and get that down without fucking hitting the house. I'm, so, I'm sorry, what? You know, and when I started, I was just the guy on the ground throwing brush into a fucking chipper. It was a job, you know? And I'm watching these guys in the air and I'm like, man, not only are you A, risking your life, which is so exhilarating, such an adrenaline rush. Two, the math and science you guys are putting into this absolutely fucking fascinates me. And I'm like, and three, like... I couldn't think of anything more exciting to fill that adrenaline void I was missing in my life from running this around on the streets, all that excitement all the time, right? This this whole journey of of becoming very peaceful and at one with myself and and studying Buddhism. And now I've got this job in nature and I'm looking up and I'm looking at these guys who are so free and peaceful up there doing their thing. And I'm like, that's where I want to be, man. That's it. So I worked real fucking hard and became how, how you, a climber. How do you become an arborist? Like, yo, I, do you go to school? Do you go, this is it a trade? Like, how do you do There's this? There's two ways. There's two ways. You go to Fleming College and you take two years of like forestry and become like you learn all the practical fucking book work of it. You learn tree species and fucking all this shit and the science and biology of trees. Or you get a fucking job at a tree company as a groundsman, chipping brush. And then next thing you know, you're working in a bucket on top of the bucket truck. You know, it goes up 65 feet. So you're working on trees that you can reach from the side of the road in a bucket. And if you're fucking crazy and loon enough, you decide that the bucket doesn't go high enough for you. So I'm going to strap on two pieces of fucking fabric, throw a fucking rope up into a tree, attach that to those two pieces of fabric, strap on a fucking 40 fucking pound chainsaw i'm gonna fucking you know pack on a couple saws and a few more ropes and enough gear to weigh me down and i'm gonna fucking hike my ass up that fucking tree 110 feet then when i'm up there i'm gonna set pulleys and rig systems up and i'm gonna tie each little piece of the fucking tree every six foot maybe even less four foot piece of fucking length of tree i'm gonna tie off with a rope and i'm gonna cut it gently then I'm going to shake it a bit. I'm going to guide it into the rope and let the rope bring it down safely through my pulley system to take the weight off. So my guy on the ground can now safely lower a 400 fucking log by himself. I have never got some shit, bro. <laughs> had anybody make like such a trade endeavor sound so fucking hard, but geeky. 
in an exhilarating yeah. way where it's like like sometimes there's this stigma that work like that necessarily doesn't necessarily get the intelligence praise it deserves but you put me in that tree and i'm telling you something i'm breaking somebody's shit and somebody <laughs> suing somebody over my dumbass pulley system not pullying very well as i fall out the damn tree and shit <clears throat> in five years i damaged one tail light on a car it cost me 900 out of my pocket i damaged one patio stone that cost me 275 out of my own pocket that's rough and i and i damaged two chainsaws because i didn't have them tied in properly and they fucking just fell <laughs> they didn't do anything but break the chainsaws, but that's the only damage I really caused in all them years. God bless. Right. But, um, the other thing too, like when you're thinking all that through and you're thinking, is this log too heavy for the pulleys I have set? Can my guy on the ground handle that weight? Is it actually going to swing and rotate on that 45 to make sure it goes in the right direction? But all that time you got to be thinking too, is the part of the tree that your rope is tied into is that safe? Is that holding? Is your knot that you fucking tied? Is that going to hold while you're fucking reaching out, putting your 200 pounds on this one knot while you got your leg lifted to reach that extra fucking inch? Is everything going to hold or am I going to plummet to my 110 fucking foot depth? Right? And, and you're up there and you're thinking all that. It's all running through your head. And it's like, what I do, bro, is put the earphones in slap on some old school jazz or some classical music, smoke a big monster fucking fatty and just let it all fucking, let it all work itself. And that was my life, bro, every day for five years. <laughs> I just have to say, Trev, I had no idea what to expect and this has been an amazing and astounding experience so far. I am oh, thank you. flabbergasted by A, your ability to tell the story and B, how fucking nifty you can make this shit sound. Like a lot of people would have just been like, bro, you climb the tree, you strap in, you set up the thing. You, no, you're like, bro, let me break this down. You need to know how fucking cool this is. And I'm like, yeah. bro, it is that cool. I am legit going to watch arborists cutting down trees on YouTube after this. Maybe not like immediately oh, after it. this. But now I'm just, and I know my girlfriend has already said I like this shit. So she's in for tr me watching videos with people in trees. Cause yo, do yourself cool. a favor. Don't, don't watch, <laughs> don't watch arborist bloopers or arborist mistakes. Nah, I want to watch that. You gotta, you gotta think, man, a mistake in an arborist career is generally life altering. If not life fatal. I I'll tell you only twice I escaped some very close calls. I was uh, very early in my career. Um, my trainer at the time that we now know was terrified of heights. And that's why he used to put guys like me up in the tree early because he didn't have to go up. But it was raining and I had a handsaw. I couldn't get my fucking chainsaw to start. And handsaws in, in the arborist industry are like bone cutting saws, man. They'll rip right through your arm in one, one cut, like no fucking problem. And my dumb ass was up there in the, in the rain and I've got my one hand on the fucking saw and I'm, I'm fucking going through a limb about this thick, which is just stupid. Doesn't physically make the physics behind it are dumb, but I'm just, I'm fucking going. And of course, because it's wet, the saw bound up in the wood. And so my 
brilliant idea was to put both my hands on the fucking handle and try to start working it this way. Well, when the saw bound up again, my bottom hand came across the fucking blade. Oh, I was wearing, you should be wearing proper gloves, but I'm one of those hero tough guys. So I was actually wearing motorcycle gloves with cut off fingers. So this just ran through the palm of my hand with, uh, with the gloves on. And I mean, I was cut bad. So I came down, I looked at the trainer and in that company that I've worked for, if you get injured at all, you get a suspension. And I like, I was at that time in my life where I couldn't afford a suspension. You know what I mean? Like I, I couldn't have this. I'm struggling. I'm trying so hard to become a full blown arborist and surpass three guys, you know, who put five years in and I'm trying to do what they're doing in five months. So it's like, no, fuck it. Duct tape that shit. I'm going out to finish the tree, <laughs> you know? And I did, I finished the tree. I healed over a couple of days. And it was no big deal. Um, the second time, the closest call I had, I was working with my younger brother on a private job and we were up, uh, we were on a property. I was climbing a tree and had a lot of limbs. I'm going to try and use something for a visual here. If I can, I'm going to use my guys. These aren't dirty Q-tips. I'm dabbing. These are my dab Q-tips. So picture the tree being like a tree. And this is me on the tree. I'm halfway up and I cut the tree. So it's supposed to, fall and tumble like this. And I would still be at right where I cut. I'm about 40 feet in the air. And so I cut it and it got stuck. The canopy was stuck in the rest of the tree. My brother on the ground starts pulling the rope and the tree starts fucking shaking. And like, you're rocking back. This is a nightmare for an arborist to be shaking in a tree is scary shit. So I tell him to stop. And I stick my chainsaw up where I've already cut the wedge. This is a like a high, high, extremely high risk move. It's so frowned upon. I should have just came down out of the tree and figured something else out. But I got, I managed to cut it. And what happened was where I cut the tree, it fell to the ground like this. Instead of falling and toppling, the butt of the tree came down and hit the ground. So the canopy was still, it was like a whole nother fucking tree. <laughs> and of course, it start falling towards me and I'm now stuck on the side of this tree in my spurs with my fucking chainsaw in my hand, watching this tree just fucking coming at me, man. And I'm like, this is how I go. This will be it. And I'm thinking to myself, and you know, they say everything happens in slow motion. Well, this actually is happening in, in legit real time, slow motion because nothing in fucking trees happens fast. Like it's literally just taking its time. The wind's blowing it. I've got like 15 seconds watching this come. And I'm like, I don't even really know what the fuck I'm supposed to do right now. This just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> My brother's like, do something. I'm like, don't know what to do, bro. <laughs> so I fucking, at the very last second, I fucking like, cause you're, you got your spurs on the outside of the tree. You got your chainsaw, right? So you're kind of hugging the tree. So at the last second, I pulled my fucking one spur out and I put my feet so close together, which is also a no-no because you can spike your own ankle, which is common. <laughs> so I'm already like worried about that. So I put my two feet together and I fucking pull my arms in and I hold onto my strap instead of the tree, which is a fucking huge no-no because now if that tree 
coming at me rips my strap in half. I'm fucking going backwards 40 feet. I'm fucking dead. It's in like, I'm literally doing every tree. No, no all at once. Like the, the chances of me not getting majorly hurt here is very slim. And I know all this and I've already fucking calculated every bit of it. Cause we're at about 25 seconds now and the tree still hasn't fucking hit. <laughs> I know bullshit, man. This is, this is a, it's a legit story. So as it gets close and it starts hitting the stump, I can see now where I'm actually going to get fucking hit. And I'm like, I'm in good position. And there's just this one branch coming at me. And if it, if I don't do nothing, it's, it's going to catch me right here, somewhere between my neck and my shoulder. Best case, I break my collarbone. Worst case, I'm fucking dead. So I fucking throw my hand up at the last second to try to get the branch to run down the side of my body instead of a direct impact. And it actually fucking works. The tree fuck. I mean, it was a lot of pressure on my body. I thought for sure I'd crack a rib. And it went a tree and it just rolled down the fucking side of me and just hit the fucking ground. And they say, you know, your heart, the adrenaline and all that shit. Dude, I've been in some gangster situations, man. And my heart was not going as fast as it was right there. Like it was fucking crazy. And, and the, your first instinct, of course, is to check yourself. Are you okay? Your adrenaline's rushing so much that, you know, they teach you, you know, in the safety course, you know, your, your fucking adrenaline's going so bad, you won't even know if you broke something. So I start looking up my bat down my body. My brother is literally freaking out from the ground. I said, I'm okay. I'm coming down. I'm coming down. Part of my life I didn't tell you, I've cut my hand off. Not once, but twice. What? Twice I've... Yeah, before I was even an arborist. So before I even did this dangerous job, I've had my hand cut off twice, not by violence either, twice. And here's the real kick, bro. You ready for this shit? Yes. Four, four years apart on the exact same fucking day this has happened to me. So I, I actually have no feeling in this pinky finger here at all. Hold on. Like your so whole I'm, hand got cut off? Yeah, I can show you pictures, show your viewers, but it's pretty gross. No, no, you can see that. really well. I have one that comes I, I, right I just, across like, here. Like, and they and attached it, it again? Up here. It didn't like it didn't come all the way off. Um I'll tell you how. The first time was a beer bottle. I reached into a case and there was a fucking broken bottle in there and it went right through the middle of my hand here and I pulled it out and my thumb didn't come out with the fucking hand. And so they went and they put that one back on. Dude, I could go on for like three hours just on that story alone. That was crazy. I had to go to five different hospitals to get my fucking thumb sewn back on because they kept kicking me out of every fucking hospital I went into. And you know what? If our sailor is watching, that's my brother. He was there. He witnessed all of this that fucking happened. Anyway, so I'm being an arborist. Let's go back to the arborist story before you get too lost. So what I'm, I know, man. The life. The you wonder why they call me elder, bro? This bro, I love it. This is so one of my down, favorite interviews, 100%. <laughs> I'm coming down the tree, and I'm looking at everything on myself. My, like, my adrenaline's going. And my brother's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And the worst, right? The customer is now coming out of the house. And they're fucking losing it. Oh, my God. Son, are you? And they're old. Son, are you okay? And I'm, like, trying to calm them down. I'm like, Doug, get the customers. Fucking put them back in the house. So I come down the fucking tree. And I get halfway down, and I look. And... I'm wearing gloves, like full finger gloves. And my fucking 
finger, I don't want to say my finger because I think it's my glove, is literally pointing in a 90 degree angle from Ooh. the palm of my fucking hand, bro. Like just straight up and down like this. I'm like, what the fuck? So I'm thinking to myself, I feel that. I know I have no feeling in my finger. So I, I, I feel that. And I'm thinking, no, my finger must have just slipped out of my glove, right? I'm thinking all this while I'm trying to climb down. So I fucking, I do the dumb thing and I lean over and I squeeze the finger of the glove to see if my fucking finger's actually in it. And yeah, my finger's in there. And I'm like, oh. And I'm thinking, is it severed from my whole hand or is it just fucking twisted? So I get down, I get the customers away and my brother's like, are you okay, bro? Really? And I'm like, I don't think this is fucking... Oh, you muted yourself in the middle of that. He was just pointing downward. My brother's like, oh, fuck. And I'm like, yeah, hospital, let's go. And those are my two closest calls is being an arborist. It wasn't long after that that I, I hung up my fucking spurs and my chainsaw permanently and said, yep, no more of that shit for me. <laughs> Which brings me to what you really want to know when I became a healer. No, I wanted to know and, all of you. educator. But like, oh, well, I'll tell you, I didn't know I wanted to know about the arborist thing. No, I mean, I'm curious about all of it, but like, I didn't know I wanted to know about the arborist thing because I didn't really know that was a thing until you started talking about it. And now I'm like pro arborist people. You just got me on board with the community. I don't know. I bet you there's an arborist TikTok that's actually like worth following somewhere out there. And then you get like ingratiated into this cool community of like from the trees or whatever. <laughs> Dude, I could send you videos for days, man. I kept, I kept all the videos. You'd be up in a tree making a cut. You'd be doing selfies and shit, going live. You're like, hey, what's up? Just uh, just up here swinging at 110 feet. Thought you'd all want to have a fucking quick look at my view. Shit like that. People be like, you're fucking put your phone down. Ah! So I'm sure there's some wild videos out there for sure to watch. I'm, I'm so into it. But yeah, we can talk about your hand getting cut off later. But I do think it's more interesting to talk about how you ended up becoming an educator. It's um, it it was fluke, really. Like, I've always like I always have been considered, you know, someone who likes to to inspire and teach uh, people because I talked um, about all my my life experiences. You know, in a room full of people, I'm the first one to to talk about. You know, I'll hear somebody talk about something that relates to my past. And, I, and I'm so quick to be like, yo, man, you know, this is, this is how it really is. Or this is what it was really like. And so when I, when I hung up my spurs, it all was like another transitioning point in my life that I didn't realize it would be at the time. But looking back, it's crazy how it all changed. I was, I was going to a, a territory dispensary. It was the only one that was open. There, there were no other ones. This was the very first one. This was like 2017 or even before 2016. Can't remember now, but I was shopping at this store and uh, I, I was, I was that guy, you know, I was already a weed connoisseur. So I go into the store and I'd stand back and I'd watch other customers and what they were buying. Right. And just listening to what they were saying. And I'd buy a gram of everything that was in the store and I and I go and I'd home and I'd smoke it all and I, you know I'd go back to the store every three days and while I was in the store I'd I'd start giving my advice to other customers that were in the store I'd be like oh man listen you don't want to smoke that or I'd be like hey you want to smoke this so after going back and forth for like a month 
because um, all the workers are on the territory and I started to get to know them, I started bringing Tim Hortons to them every day. So like I was going out to the res with, or sorry, my boy, Willie, sorry for watching. I know you, you're edu Willie educated me. It's not polite to call it a res. Um, so all my friends on the territory, I started feeling bad for them because, you know, there's no Tim Hortons out there. Mm. So I was, I was coming to buy weed every day for every other day for, and getting, getting to know all these employees. So I started bringing coffee every day, every time I go out to the res. I just said it again. Every time yeah, I go into learn, the territory. Really, and everyone else, we learn him, but we acknowledge, and it's something to work on. Thanks. So I go out to the territory, and I go with, like, 12 Tim Hortons coffees, right, which cost, like, 14 bucks. It wasn't, like, huge thing. You know, and I'd start getting to know the employees really, really well. So I'd bring out, like, the coffees that they wanted, and then they were throwing me all these free pre-rolls, and I'd get all this swag. And then winter came. And I was like, I think I was just turning 40 or I was about to turn 40. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to do another winter outside as an arborist. It's fucking cold up there at 110 feet when it's minus 40 degrees outside. All mm. of that shit I was talking about and make, making those decisions and those on the fly moves and stuff. It's really hard to do those when it's sub zero weather. Right. And, and as your body gets older, for those of my viewers that are older, they already know. For my younger viewers, it is not a fucking stereotype. It's true. You hit a certain age and your body tells you that you're an asshole and that it doesn't want to do certain things anymore. Well, climbing trees in sub 40 degree weather is one of those things your body's going to tell you you don't want to do anymore. <laughs> so I showed up at the dispensary and I said, I said, hey, man. And he said what I said. And it was all, of course, indigenous people. Right. Because back then it was pre-legalization. Yeah, what's up to the cat? They were working under the, the indigenous treaty. Yeah, look. The cat? No, it's behind you. The cat like popped out. And it's a little, little, little guest appearance on cam behind you in the window. It was really cute. Oh, shit. <laughs> I didn't even know he was up there. Fats, what's up, dude? It's because my windows aren't normally open, but I'm smoke showing in here right now. So my cat's trying to get some fresh air probably. Mm. Fats is a... This is my cat, man. He's a he's a typical ginger. You got to see this guy, man. I've brought him on my show before. Fats is uh, probably the biggest, fattest, but healthiest cat you'll ever see. Holy fuck. So Fats is 29 pounds, maybe more. We what haven't weighed him in. What uh, Holy smokeronies. We, we haven't weighed him in a year or two. So this is the big fat guy. We've done a lot of cat rescues over the years, and four four little gingers we kept. One didn't turn out to stay as a small ginger. He turned out to be the fattest bastard. So he, uh, his actual name is Dexter, but we call him the fat man. It's the only thing he actually responds to. Mm. And he loves making guest appearances, but not tonight, buddy. Get out of here. <laughs> so uh, I went into the dispensary one day and I said, man, you know what? Like, I know it's all indigenous people that work here. Can I work in the basement? I'll just pack the, the, the pre-pack the weed. You know, just I need three months out of the cold before I go back to to climbing trees. <coughs> they hemmed and hot over it because they knew about my colorful past. And they thought, well, you know what? He's a great guy. He brings a lot of coffee. Um, so why not give him a shot in the basement? If he turns out to be shit, we'll just get rid of him. Don't, no harm, no foul. The, I, I know to this day and I know uh, my mentor, he watches this show a lot. He watches my show, so I'm sure he's tuning in. My mentor will tell you straight that the only reason 
I got that job was from the amount of coffee and Tim Hortons that I brought every day for like six months prior to asking for a job. They were like, this guy's going to bring coffee every single day to work. Let's give him a job. <laughs> I went to, uh, and I went, started packing. That is possibly um, one of the best life lessons on value propositions I've ever fucking heard. How a little listen, I'll tell you right now, my protege who I've been training for the last couple of years, uh, they watch my shows too. And they'll tell you straight when they came to apply at the store that I work at or was working at, they started bringing coffee every single day. And I was like, did you tear a fucking page out of my book, man? And they were like, you taught me some of the best lessons ever. And one of them was to bring coffee everywhere you go. In, in Canada, you cannot go wrong with bringing a fucking Tim Hortons with you. You goddamn well know somebody is going to be like, you You brought me a free Timmy's and you just made a new fucking best friend somewhere. Take that. Take note. People watching this show, take note. Public service announcement. Life experience you know, lesson. Biggest facts. And even if you want to go real dark with it on a laws of power tape, it indebts people to you off the jump on a subtle psychological thing for like, you know, I'm not making like chopper, but, but yo, what is the problem with positive manipulation? Like we all act like Nothing. the word is, is terrible, but I'm like, nah, I want to make your day better. Motherfucker deal with it. You know, like that's a yeah, good time. I love that concept. I it's love like that totally concept. fucking fine to me. It's when you take those same skill sets and try to do bad things with them that it becomes complicated. But yeah, go go give gifts to people and then watch how they want to be nice to you. Like, you yeah, know, like for sure. And I, and I say too though, like I do this a lot, the whole I, I never talk about the stuff I do for people on camera. I know that every supporter and every fucking fan I have that that's been following me for the last couple of years knows there's some things I've done that they have wanted to go public and they're like, people need to see what you do. And I'm like, no, man, you know, I don't want that kind of praise. I don't do shit like that to get some kind of fucking recognition. Mm. And a lot of people, there's a, there's a real good argument to that too. They say, you know, but you might inspire somebody to do the same shit. And it's like, it's a 50, yeah, you do the same thing. as It's a 50, 50. And you know how society is today. Because, like, other sides of it. So I tried to, like, at work, uh, day job, create an initiative. We have a PDF editor. So I'm like, yo, we should, like, partner with a tree planting company. <laughs> like, this synergy is just beautiful. But, like, it really is big business. And then you start talking to people about charity contributions. And it's like, there's a flip side to it where for everybody that's going to praise you for bragging about it, a lot more people are going to judge you for it. Now, you have, if you're like billion dollar wealthy, fine. Like, you should do it. But you're like not supposed to talk about it. I don't know why it is, but it's like a real norm. I'm a social media guy. Somebody does charity. I'm like, bro, put that on blast. But then it's like, nah, reputationally speaking, it could actually fuck you, which is weird exactly. because you're doing good things. This isn't like my opinion one way or another. Honestly, I'm so conflicted. No. I just assessed the situation and I saw a lot of powerful people won't fuck with you if you brag like that. A lot of middle class people, a lot of basically it's like 50 50. Yep. And it's right like down the middle, man. at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself why you do it. 
And like I do do weird, kind, charitable things here and there that nobody's heard of. Sometimes I'll do something and I don't even tell Bonnie. It's like whatever. She didn't, nobody cares. Why am I doing it, right? I'm more of that mindset inherently. I like to like be a buffoon and you don't need to know that shit. I don't know why I'm like that and I don't know what the right choice is. But I relate heavy to this and I, I, I just validate it as like a real fucking thing that's 50-50, you know? But telling people about tactics on how they can positively create better opportunities in their life is fair game i think even if it happens to be buying coffee over six months which is pretty fucking kind i think i think positive reinforcement is 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 super important these days but i also think that the gray area in between like you said you know like the 50 50 we all know how society is today you know 10 years ago if you posted a video of fucking helping somebody out you know, what on whatever level, you know, you get some positive fucking reactions to that. To fast forward ten years where social media has become, you know, on the wrong side can be extremely fucking poisonous and badly influential. And you know, a guy like myself goes out and I do say I do do something like that, go out and help the homeless and, and feed a meal or, you know, yeah. do some of the things I've done. If I'd done those on camera, you know, are people gonna say Oh, look at Trev. He's doing something fucking awesome. Are people going to say, look at this fucking piece of shit, you know, out there doing shit for likes and fucking hearts and views. And that's the world that we live in now. It's hard to try to inspire people to do good things without having society judge you on the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. You know, which is why, again, when you turn to what I do now, it makes things so much easier. On the other hand, if you do enough good things, it ends up being like time later, people be pointing out that picture Trev didn't know got taken at that thing. <clears throat> and then people put it together and then elevate you. And that will also happen. So it's like you don't actually have to tell people about the things. Other people will tell the people about the things on your behalf when it's sincere. That's my belief, at least. I don't know if I'm 100% right. But I know that... Like Eminem might not brag about what he does, but he does a whole lot and other people defend him for it because he does a whole lot that I don't know about because he doesn't talk about it. So it's super nifty. I thought a lot about Eminem on that one subject too. Anyway, that's a whole other rabbit hole. So you end up getting this job yeah. at the dispensary. Oh, um, fuck yeah. Yeah, so I worked in the basement for, I think it was a week and a half. I was supposed to be down there for three months because... The way that it wore was was if you weren't indigenous, you weren't actually covered by the treaty. Even though you were on territory, it was still illegal for me to actually hand somebody cannabis and them hand me money. It's still just a fucking drug deal, right? Unless I'm native, I'm not covered by the treaty. So what happened was the dispenser became so ridiculously busy. And they only had like four staff upstairs that worked the floor. They had like six or eight staff that were in the basement but these a lot of the, the staff in the basement had chosen to work in the basement they didn't interact well maybe customer service wise or maybe they didn't know enough about cannabis to be on the floor whatever whatever reason so every now and then the floor would call and they'd say you know we need a body up here bad and i just wouldn't hesitate you know i was like this is my opportunity i don't want to be down here packing weed i want to be up talking to people and I go upstairs and I'd start helping the public. And it was really, <laughs> I hope my mentor is watching because in the beginning, when I was helping the public, you should have heard me talk. It was, it was quite, a, it was quite an embarrassment. I, I had an F bomb, you know, in every 
other word in sentences trying to talk to customers here. Oh, this fucking, this weed's a shit, bro. Wait till you try this. It'll blow your fucking head off. You're going to be stoked. And people really loved my energy, you know, but there was certainly some clientele that were like, wow, man, this guy's just a bit too much. And so my mentor, who at the time was my man, was our floor manager, you know, he was looking over me going, you know, Trevor is fantastic with people. We just need to mold him a little bit more for this kind of environment. And so they sat me down and they were like, okay, man, you know, this is, what do you want to do with your career? You know, like if you're going to work here and work on the floor and work with our public, we need to refine you a little bit, man. You know, like people are coming in to see you, you know, and then they hear you talk and it's a whole different thing. And so right away, we shaved a few words out of my vocabulary, like, and not just swear words. Like I didn't, I didn't use the word weed anymore. I didn't use marijuana, you know, it was onto cannabis and flour, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, wax and butter. It was concentrates and shatter and live resin, you know, and my mentor took a couple of days to really define my, just my vocab so that I, I would be a better salesman on the floor. My mm-hmm. customer service was great. And my knowledge for cannabis for basic cannabis was, was inspiring. Right. And so they took that and they rolled with it. And now the one thing that we had um, that was different was we had a cannabis testing lab on site that was viewable to the public. And we had this this one girl and she worked in there and she was the only one that knew how to run the lab equipment. She was the only one trained and educated to do it. And, and she got work to the bone. And just one day I was just kind of looking at it and I was like, that looks like a really cool job. And so I asked her to train me in the lab equipment and microscopes and, you know, molds, mites, impurities, and, and starting to get into the biology of cannabis and start breaking it down to terpenes and, and what terpenes should have certain effects. And this was something that me and her, like, just kind of did together. You know, the store hadn't really embarked on quite that in depth of things yet. And of course, my mentor, who's, if you think I love science, this guy's, oof, he's the science guy. And so, you know, he would, he was running the store now. He was the whole store manager, but he would love coming into the lab to see what we had, you know, what we were learning and what was new and what was, what was going on. And so they, they'd taken me off the floor sales floor as full time. And they, they'd allow me to be a full-time lab technician. But as I started studying more about the fundamentals of cannabis and the breakdowns of it, I started learning so much about the medicinal benefits. And it was, it was literally blowing my mind. The stuff that I was reading and, and the research that was available to me because of where I was working. The building that I worked in was well known as one of Canada's best top medicinal houses, you know, on territory. I think they were ranked number one for like a year right and 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 having that as your you know as your backing there it opened so many doors i i was i was on the phone with guys from israel and we were on the phone with guys from colorado and you know we were just learning from each other and then i started studying treatments and ailments the the house that i worked at we call them houses the dispensary that i worked at had a had a, a membership program so when you came in to do business, you had to fill out a genuine uh, uh, general information, your name. You can put a fake name. We didn't give a shit, right? What city you were reigning in from for demographics, your real birth date, 
and anything that you may have been coming in medicinally that you were trying to get some help with, whether it was arthritis, ADHD, fucking anxiety, uh, depression. I mean, you, you name it. It fucking, it was on these papers, MS, Parkinson's fucking. And then I hit the first one that was cancer. And I was like, wow. I'm like, you, you, you're combating cancer. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, this is, you know, for me, I'm, it, it really hits you hard that you're, you're working behind the counter of a retail store, but somebody literally just come to you for advice on how to, how to save their life. And it was like, oh, I don't, I don't have enough information to be able to help you with that. And, but that, it was like an inspiration, like right there I needed to know, right? I'd heard rumors there was a product that, you know, was known to combat cancer. For me, I was still sitting on the stigmatic side that said, sounds too good to be true, probably fucking is. There's no way you can tell me I can fucking beat cancer with weed, was kind of what was rattling inside my brain. And so I started looking into it and I was quickly, you know, I stumbled across what we now know as RSO or Rick Simpson oil, you know, and, and all the, what, what really astonished me was how much information was readily available on all types of the internet, you know, with so much screening and censorship we see and how they try to bury so many real truths. You'd think that if cancer was as easy to cure as growing a plant in my backyard, Soaking it in alcohol for a few days, boiling it, and then consuming it, and that's going to cure my cancer? Right? Let that rattle around in modern day. Well, it just sounds way too good to be true. I think it's because like people act like there isn't weed research. Uh, I read this fascinating book that described why, like you know, a history of weed in America, and. Uh, like to this day, it's not like you can just go research weed at U.S. institutions the way that you can research weed anywhere else in the world. So I believe it's still a federal one-class drug. I believe there's still one university in the entire country that's authorized to do what's what's considered uh, legitimate research by the CDC and all them. So basically. The only country that allegedly counts at a global scale is not having any independent research, any kind of research. There's no research on weed. So the rest of the world is proving shit left, right, and center, but the states. So, I mean, like, I know it's changed in the last little bit and it's loosening up and whatever, whatever, but we're talking until like 2015, no problem. And that, that would be, I think, why people don't care because the u.s didn't put on anything it's it's crazy when you think about how much the u.s leads like on that level on influence because all of i've worked with and and i'm very proud to say this you know we'll get into the details if you want um but i've i've worked with teams of doctors like like conference calls with doctors from colorado bc fucking uh israel and in uh, England and all of I'm sitting on this panel with all these fucking doctors and they're all talking and they're like, well, what do you think? And I'm like, I think that I've been sitting in a fucking medicinal dispensary for three years studying my ass off and I'm sitting in a room full of recognized and esteemed doctors and I'm too fucking afraid to say a goddamn word. That's what I'm thinking. Right. I, I, I'll never stake claim to 
producing the products that I teach about. But through reading, research, and hands-on with the customer base that we had at the store, I think when I left that store, they, they had 50, 56 or close to 60,000 registered customers, members. Now, you got to think, with every member, they filled out a membership card. So you knew with that, every card, kind of they filled crazy. out what they were suffering from. What the fuck? You have no idea how raw that data was that we collected over a two and a half year period through customer base. So you're, you're Stefan and you're suffering from arthritis and depression and anxiety. And you start coming to that store and you use your membership card on every purchase. Your purchase now ties into our database that's now collecting what you've been using to combat those things. Now, if my fucking system sees that you purchase the same thing over and over, I now, the, the system now collects that data and says, product A is clearly successful for ailment X with patient B, C, A. Bruh. Now do that on a 60,000 fucking client scale. You just data. And have that fucking laptop right in front of me with a testing lab and unlimited resources and just the will and wanting to know everything that was in front of me. There was nothing I didn't want to know. There was no part that I was like, no, that's not important. Mm -hmm. No, that's not. No, 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 no. And I studied this shit through hands-on and through reading the, the data and the research that we were collecting. But where it became pivotal for my treatment, I was, I was very successful at it. And this is where a lot of people, this is where my haters come. And this part of my career is where the haters start. Up until now, everything that I've done, it's just been a blessing. But people will sometimes mistake my, my knowledge for arrogance. Love it. Or cockiness. I feel that. And it's a, it's so hard as a teacher and an educator and, and a healer to find a balance between sharing your knowledge, re-educating those who think they're already knowledge, educating those that have zero knowledge at all, and trying to get people to recognize that without sounding cocky or arrogant or conceited that you literally were part of the breaking movement of, ca of cancer treatment for what we know today. But who are you? Well, I'm fucking Trev Jones, the ex-con old criminal bud tender, pot connoisseur. Right. So like the credibility, you know, is certainly difficult or it was at the time. And especially it's even more difficult to not come across conceited Bro, or arrogant really heavy, man. when you're trying to teach this and not just teach it to, in my case, not, not in my newest position, but in, in my case over the years to my coworkers, even more, you'd be surprised the hardest ones to teach are your loved ones. And then of course, complete strangers through, through videos and workshops and, and, classrooms and all the work that I've done over the years, you know, and still try to look like you're and, and remain that humble without portraying that kind of arrogance and conceitedness. It's certainly where people come and say, he thinks he fucking knows everything. You know what? I never claim to know any, everything. Do I claim to know an awful fucking lot? Yeah. 
but I fucking studied real hard. And, and I mean, we'll get to the most emotional part of this interview is coming for sure. I I'll tell you guys straight up ahead of a time. I will break down in tears twice in this interview because there has never been a time I've been able to talk about these two experiences and, and been able to hold my emotion back where I, I didn't cry. So through, through being, becoming a treatment and ailment expert, as they were starting to call me very quickly, people were coming to see me from all over the province and, and like with wait and say, I know I'm good. I just, I need to wait for Trev. I was sent here from someone to see Trev. Trev, 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 Trev. And the whole time I'm trying not to develop an ego. But something deep inside of me is thinking, fuck, you really did it, man. You made it. Inside, you're thinking, you really have become successful in what it is that you've set out to do. You know, and now I just, it's, it's about teaching. So while all this was going on, I stumbled across this Rick Simpson treatment. And it was something we offered out of the store. Rick Simpson oil in the shortened gist of it in layman terms is a full spectrum extract and it's a high dose of THC and all full cannabinoids, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the most layman terms I can put for anybody on the planet. High concentrated dosages of THC will eradicate cancer cells on a molecular level. That is fucking science. It's not conspiracy. It's not some bullshit. It's fucking fact. It's just, and you can look that up. You can research it. You can look at <laughs> fucking hundreds of testimonials. Or I can just tell you something. And so through the Rick Simpson, thanks, man. I got my stagehand serving me dinner while I'm still in an interview because he knows I have another show coming up right after this one. He's trying to feed me. I love this test. So I, I found out that Rick Simpson oil on its own, the Rick Simpson formulation through the research that I'd collected myself was primitive. It was, it was for lack of better terms, it was beginner stuff. We are now, well, I'm talking now about past legalization. Legalization did a couple things for us. It didn't just open the fucking doors for us to smoke weed on the fucking street openly and not get arrested. I mean, amen for that. Right. But what it also did was open a fucking gazillion doors and opportunities for Silicon Valley and researchers and doctors to come forward and not have to fucking study, you know, in closed doors in fear of being arrested or prosecuted. We can now come public and go share every fucking thing that we knew with everybody everywhere. And then we had fucking geeks and Zil I call you geeks because you're my boys. We had geeks in Silicon Valley starting to produce fucking equipment and technology that enabled us to take what we already knew and make it fucking science and make it factual and make it undisputable, right? And so through all this, we, we found out the same, it was the same with the Rick Simpson treatment. The Rick Simpson treatment on its own is yes, it can be successful, but it wasn't successful enough for me. I, I, I wasn't, I knew that, I knew that we could improve it. And that was a very cocky and bold statement for two fucking potheads sitting in a fucking lab in a territory in Alderville who don't have any doctoral or science or medical backgrounds at all. We were just 
enthusiasts and activists that had research and data available to us and products, endless fucking products that we could, we could look into and research. All in all, it ended with Rick Simpson oil by itself wasn't enough. People with cancer patients and, and clients that we had were still dying. And that wasn't working. That wasn't sitting for me. And I was like, no, man, and there's more to this. I know there's more. And I looked into the formulations and with the help of like, I don't care if she's watching. I don't care if anybody tells her that I said this with the help of this bat shit, crazy loon tune woman who lives on the territory. She's a registered herbologist. She's a lot of things, but she's smart with herbs. And she created something. Well, I don't know if she created or, or she recreated something called a Hockney formulation. And this is an all natural um, herb formulation. And it, it had two fucking miracle things that, that went on with it. One, it helps expunge toxins out of the body at, at, a, at an exceptional rate. When you start eradicating cancer cells, toxins start to build up in the body, dead cancer cells. If you don't get them out fast enough, Fuck, you, you can lose a patient from, from going toxic faster than you can lose them from cancer, right? So she had this formulation that helped expunge those toxins at, at a great rate. And it had a second, um, second benefit. When a cell is attacked by cancer, um, what can be left behind in a lot of the cells that, that are affected in the body are damaged. Right. And, and Western science will put you on a medication to help protect those damaged cells for the rest of your life. The Hockney formulation will actually help repair the human cell back to normal and make it help. This was like fucking imperative part of a treatment. Right. And I was like, and I, and I couldn't for the life of me figure out for all the things we knew about CBD. Okay. For, for those of you that don't know, the, the two best benefits of CBD or is it boost your natural immune system and boost your natural healing system? So, I mean, it doesn't take a doctor to think that if we're combating cancer in a body, why the fuck would we not be pounding it with CBD to keep the natural immune system and the natural healing system boosted to the max while we put our bodies through this tremendous war? Right. And so now I've got three components. And then I met this dietitian one day and she said, you know, one of the key factors to combating cancer is to starve it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, and she took this whole time. Like she took a couple of weeks to educate me on like how cancer actually feeds on, you know, processed foods and sugars and, and, and all this different stuff. And there's actually a diet that's on the internet, easy to, fine it's called the gerson diet and if you were to follow this diet to the letter if you had cancer and you didn't do any cannabis or cbd or anything else and you just followed this gerson diet by itself you have a chance to cause just to be cancer on its own now i'm not telling anybody anything on how to treat your cancer always consult your doctor your physician fucking i'm not the be all and end all i'm just telling you what i know and what i learned and the final factor was this rick simpson oil Right. So it broke down to Rick Simpson oil will eradicate cancer cells. CBD oil will help boost your natural immune system and natural healing system. The Hockney formulation will remove the dead cancer cells from your system and repair any damage that was left behind. 
and the fucking Gerson diet will starve any cancer cells that we didn't get with the fucking THC. And I sat there for a few minutes and it was like, it all just came together. And it was like, and I was like, these four things together would make for like an incredible cancer treatment. But like, how do you go to somebody who says, I'm combating cancer and you're like, well, I'm fucking nobody, <laughs> but I want you to fucking, I want you to risk your life on what I think I know. And fucking sorry if it doesn't work. Like, you know what I mean? Like, can you imagine being that in that position? You're sitting in your fucking desk. You finally think that you have put all the fucking pieces together. You think you fucking finally have it all fucking figured out. You've talked to Rick's Simpson himself. You talk to doctors in Israel. You've got a team of fucking, you know, people like left, right, center. You've got it all fucking, you know, you've got it. But who the fuck do you go to and say, I need you to risk your life for me on, on nothing but a hypothesis of what I think is going to fucking work. And I'll tell you, bro, you ready for the first set? Here they come. I, I was well, well known for coming into work on my days off. I fucking, I loved going into work, catching up on the test. Because on top of all this, I had to test every single cannabis product that came through the store. I had to go through my testing machine and my microscope. So while I'm inspecting 40-something products a day and giving them the, the stamp of approval to go out on the floor and be sold, what's that? What are you drinking? I don't know what that means, but yes, yes. And only if I can have a small glass of it, just to see what you're drinking. I love my stage in. Shout out stage so in, I was, guy. <laughs> so you know. So I, I came in on my day off, which was not unknown. They always gave me the slow days off. And so, uh, you know, it was one of these weird times where there was no customers in the store. And when there were no customers in the store, a lot of the staff would take that chance. They'd run out back, they'd rip a bong, right? They'd go downstairs, grab your phone, fucking hit them, whatever. Right. The door chime rings and, you know, someone runs up. So I was downstairs and I came upstairs. I didn't even hear the door chime. Shout out, bro. Thank you. I didn't even hear the door chime. He knows I'm about to have tears. So he brought me a fucking swath of his rosé. Hmm. Um, and I came up the stairs and there was this guy coming in the door. And I was like, oh, hey, man, how you doing? Can I help you? And he was like, yeah, he's like, I don't really know what do i don't really know why i'm here i just you know my friend said i should come here and i was like cool man i'm like i'm trev you know what can i do for you and he's like well i i have cancer and now this was never a big shock right i've probably dealt with about seven cancer patients or clients from this time already and we we were in the cancer treatment you know process at that time and he said i have uh i have 60 days to live they gave me 60 days to live. And I said, well, I said, what treatments are you on? And he said, none. He said, they've just sent me home. Call it a day. And it blew me away because he looked really healthy and he looked in good spirits and it was fucking weird to me. And I said, I said, well, he said, what do you know about cannabis, man? And he said, well, you know, I, I know a bit, but not a lot. I just, I think it'll help these things. And I said, have you ever heard of Rick Simpson oil? And he said, my friend had said something to me, but I didn't pay attention. And I said, you got half an hour? And he was like, <laughs> dumb question kind of thing, you know? 
And so I told him everything. I had a spiel that I have for Rick Simpson treatment when I'm introducing people to, to what the product is and how it works and the treatment program and, you know, everything that's available. And I said, the thing is, man, it's, it's, it's 60 grams over 90 days. Cause you're supposed to build up for those that don't know, you start your Rick Simpson treatment by consuming a very small amount. And that's to help build up your tolerance level because it's such a high concentrate. So you consume a bit and you're fucking high. Right. And a lot of people that come to you with cancer treatment aren't necessarily cannabis users. Mm. So we're going to, it's like eating a 800 milligram fucking edible at once, you know, not recommended for the lightweight, you know? So you tell them to kind of take a quarter of the 800 milligram fucking edible and build their way up. So that over the course of like the first five weeks, you're, you're, you're consuming very small amounts and getting up to where you have to consume an entire fucking gram every single day. Excuse me one second. If you're gonna take a shit right beside me, my cat, while I'm doing an interview, that's just that's hilarious. bad manners. That's bad amazing. fucking manners. Come no on, I was expecting that. I wasn't expecting that. No one was expecting the cat to take a shit and not be a part of this. No, fucking bastard. So he said, uh, he said, well, I'll just take a, a whole gram a day. 60 grams, 60 days. And I said, buddy, you're going to be fucking high as a kite. Like you're not even going to, you will be non-functional. Like you're going to wake up, eat a gram, wake up, eat a gram for 60 fucking days. And he was like, yep. How much does it cost? Slammed down his fucking money. Took everything I had to offer. I always give my RSO customers uh, my phone number, my private number. And I tell them, call me 24 seven, man. Cause like people get really high off it and then they want to call a fucking, they want to call the ambulance and shit. Like that was the 2019 number one call of 911 was people calling, thinking they were dying from overeating edibles. So the last thing I want is a cancer patient having a quote unquote overdose of cannabis in the middle of the night and calling a fucking ambulance because then they might take them there and the doctor could convince them not to take the RSO anymore and undo everything we're doing. So I give him my phone number, ask my wife, man, my wife, I used to get phone calls at fucking two thirty, three, five, fucking seven thirty, And she, no, it's like RSO patients, fine. So I gave him all this, my phone number, everything. And he left. And I was, I was waiting to hear from him. Like every fucking day, man, I was like, call me, man. like in the back of my head, I'm like, call me, bro, call me, bro, call me, bro. And like 30 days went by and, you know, even though I was keeping track of all of these other patients' data and clients' data, if I don't see you, I don't have anything to write down. So I have no reason to open your file, right? So I, I, I was embarrassed at the time to say I'd forgotten about him. Like it was just, the store was so busy. Things were moving so quick. I just, I hadn't been able to stop and think about it. And I remember 67 days after I met him, I was, I was at work. He uh, he came walking in, and I I didn't know what to think. I was fucking. I, so I walked over. He was clutching a, a piece of paper, and he he slammed it down so hard on the glass, dude. I thought he was going through the fucking glass display, and I couldn't get a read off him, man. And I'm a people guy, you know. I couldn't I couldn't read him. I couldn't tell if he was about to slap me and tell me everything was a waste of time. But he looked me dead in my eyes, man. And he said, you saved my life. And I said, what? 
And he said, I'm cancer free. And I was like, like I was just no words. And he started crying and I couldn't help. I started crying. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm cancer free. You saved my life. I'm alive because of you. And he had his, his fucking doctor scores, his test scores. And they were made, they made him go back three times over four days because they didn't believe it. Cause he went from such a high PSA score that he was going to drop dead in 60 days or less to 67 days later, he was not only alive, he was fucking cancer free. So he was like, we had a moment, man. Like, fuck, did we ever have a moment? We balled it out. He's 54. He was 54. He'd be 58 today. He's still, he's still alive. He's 58 today. And uh, he'd come into the store once a week and tell him, just wouldn't buy fuck all, man. Just, just to tell me he was still here and everything was great. And uh, we did a live interview with him. And I wasn't even like, like I'd never done an interview before in my life. I'd never even done a video. He just, my store wanted me, wanted to interview him, but he said he would only do the interview if it was me that did the interview. And I blew it, bro. <laughs> Knowing where, where we are today and what we both do and how we both interview people. I'm so glad I can't find that interview because it was, it was fucking choppy. It was so bad, but he used to check in with me uh, right up until I left the store. I lost all his information when, uh, when I left that store, but, um, we went on from there. Like it was word spread so fast, you know, that this had happened and people were coming from all over to get the knowledge and the education and the treatment. And my dad, who just recently passed like very recently, um, he was dead against cannabis, like fucking dead against it. He thought the craziest thing I ever did was shut my fucking six digit a year tree company to fucking work retail behind a counter. That's how my dad looked at it. And then when he tossed in the, the cannabis factor, you know, like he would never say he was disappointed in my decision, but you can tell he was. <laughs> and I remember one day we were like, if you, if you know, I'll say their name out loud. I don't give a fuck, man. We made retribute. We, we fucking reconciled with each other. It's, it's the medicine wheel in Alderville that I'm talking about. And back in the day, they would have like fucking 500 customers a day. The place was jammed from sun up to sundown. And I used to get into these modes where I'd start talking to, you know, an elderly couple and it would end up that there'd be half a room of people would be listening to me teach. I'd look like one of those fucking guys at a home show, homeowners, you know, standing there talking with a little mic in his fucking ear, talking to the crowd. Like I'm trying to sell you some fuck, you know, this and that. And I remember, and this was a regular thing. And I know a lot of my viewers are watching. So like anybody can vouch. But um, I remember one day I was like, I'd been working there two years almost. And I, I really could work a room and I, I really did love to teach and educate all these people, you know, and then help them with their individual need. And I remember just coming to the end of something and I looked across the room and there was my dad, like standing in a dispensary. And it, I was first like completely, no, it's not my dad. It's just someone who looks like my dad. And, but it was my dad. And so uh, he, he said he was, he was trying to call me from outside. He wanted me to have a smoke with him and tell me something, whatever the fuck it was. He said he waited so long that he decided to come in to find me. He said he sat, he was standing there for like, I think he said like 45 fucking minutes. He said he, he just sat there and he watched and he watched me 
me teach and he watched me educate and he and he said the way that people were just listening and watching how people you know there, there's a product i use that i can i can fix your arthritis in like seven to eight minutes and so if i'm fixing your arthritis i'll, I'll sit there and talk to you for seven to eight minutes while i put the product on right and so there's a there's been a lot of tears in the lobby of like people like i have a story of a, a lady she her husband was filling out the paperwork um and I looked over at her and her hand was like, like, like this. And, uh, her husband was there for some, some sleep aid. And I said to her, I said, Hey, do you mind if I ask what's up with your hand? And she said, Oh, I suffer from such severe arthritis that my hand has been locked like this for uh, nine years. And I said, nine years. And she said, yeah. And I said, is it painful? And she said, some days. And I said, do you, would you mind? And she said, so I, I took her hand and I rubbed some lotion into her hand um, front and back. And I said to her, do you go have a seat? I said, I'm going to finish up with your husband and I'll come back and check on you in about 10 minutes. And uh, I wasn't even finished with the husband. It was like six minutes later, seven minutes later. And she came up and she was bawling her face off. And I said, Oh my God, honey. I said, what's wrong? And she was doing this with her hands. And she looked me in my face and she said, uh, because of you, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to feed myself my own dinner for the first time in nine years. And it was like, oh, fuck, waterworks from hell, right? So it's like, it was these little moments of working at the retail counter and having such a monumental impact on some people's lives. Just from sharing a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of product knowledge, it, I just, I knew that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It was like, I don't care about the money. I don't do it for the money. I do it to literally for the corniest cliche it could ever sound. I literally do what I do to try to save some lives. I've, I've lost so many family members to cancer. It's like, if, if I could have, if, if, if censorship wasn't what it was and I had the fucking knowledge I had 15 years ago today, today, you know what I'm saying? How many of my family members would I, would I, I'm not die. I fucking I saved a guy's life who was going to die in 60 days. 67 days later, he's cancer free. So what the fuck could I have done for all those people that I lost to cancer? And it just it enrages me when I think about that. But it 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 drives me and motivates me to make sure that any chance I can get to educate and teach about treatments and ailments and what cannabis and cannabis plants can do for you. I will, I'll step on that camera. I'll get on that platform. I'll grab a mic. I'll sit on the counter for five extra hours and not get paid. If it means that I can help somebody have a better, healthier, happier lifestyle, or in some cases, the most extreme cases, if I can save somebody's life, think about it like this, friend. It would all of a sudden mean that the first 29 years of my life that I was running around being a fucking asshole, all of a sudden that wasn't so meaningless. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Brought some kind of, some kind of balance and it, 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 it made some kind of completion to me. And some people say you'll go your entire life studying Buddhism and, and 
and you'll never find enlightenment. And I got to tell you, bro, I found it. I found it when, not when the first person told me that I saved their life, not even when the second, but when it became a trend, it, 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 it was so pivotal. It was just like, this is it. This is what you need to do. This is what you're going to do. You know, I don't make a lot of money doing any of the things I do. Everybody knows I do a lot of things. I do. I work at a counter. I have the shows, which, you know, have minor sponsorships. I had a distribution company for a while. Legit one. Don't get all excited. You know, and I give all of that shit up all of the time just to go work behind the counter, which is normally my least, you know, amount of income. Guys, make no mistake. Selling legal weed is fun as hell. Is it lucrative for the bun tender? No. <laughs> you know, uh, government bun tenders make minimum fucking wage. Make no mistake. You know, territory mm. bun tenders don't do too bad. But at the end of the day, these are not buying house kind of wages. You know, fuck, I rent, man. I'm 40 and change and I fucking rent. You want to you wanna pretend that I'm in a multi-billion dollar industry for the money? Five years later, sharing cancer research, you want to think I'm in it for the money when I rent a fucking shitty house in Coburg? <laughs> oh, man, I am completely compassionate driven. I do this because if, if, it, if it improves, if it saves one, if it educates one person, if it just gets it out there, you know, it that's that's worth more than anything, right? And it doesn't hurt for, you know, lack of, I never hurt for lack of shit to smoke, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, that's why you wanted to know this whole interview. One of the things that you, you said you wanted to know more than anything else is how, why, and what, what, what drives me to teach and how I became a teacher and an educator. And that's it. You know, there's some, there's some cool life parts of parts of my life that, you know, we left out and I appreciate that. Some things I probably shouldn't talk about on camera, Big packs. <clears throat> but that is really basically how I went from my very first charge was, you know, using a weapon on, on a, on a fellow classmate, you know, and, and then in turn, you know, fast forward 30 something years later, and I'm and I'm out here just spreading peace, love, and, and trying to get the good word of the good education and and, and help people and, and just try to guide people in, on the right path and make sure that people don't have to go through all the bullshit and shit I went through to try to find their calling or their success. You know, I've wasted so many years, a lot of wasted years, you know, that looking back, no matter what I do. You know, I will never make those things right inside myself. A lot of people tell me that, you know, I don't have anything to make up for, but nobody gets to make that call except me. And there's just some things, you know, no matter how much good we do, we, we just never make up for. So I'll throw that out there. I'll throw that out there in the universe, hoping one nah. day I wake up, hoping that karma has been lifted. But, you know, with the, with the feeling of, true enlightenment and everybody can call enlightenment whatever they want your interpretation of enlightenment can be completely up to you that's the beauty of studying buddhism perception is everything 
and finding and, and feeling and believing that I have found true enlightenment through healing and education and teaching will be what continue to drive me until somebody literally makes me stop. Man, use one of those real ones. Like, that was a lot. I didn't have to say anything for a very long and lengthy period of time. Because what, what could I have contributed there anyway? There's nothing to say. You were just, you were just doing your thing. There were a few things I was curious about. And I'm 100% still curious about them. But uh, it didn't feel right. That was, like, blessed as fuck. So, um, that's a lot. You just kind of, like... You literally almost had me crying at one point. It was definitely, like, um, the arthritis lady with the hands. I'm like, shit, I can picture that video on YouTube and everything. Like, it's serious shit. I was, like, man, like, like I encounter you through Willie Scandals, right? And y'all are doing some show shit and some weed shit, and nobody explains a fucking thing, right? Because that's the world, right? <laughs> you just show up, and you fucking have no context, and you Google people, <laughs> and there's no context, and so you don't fucking understand anything. It's not, like, context a lot. So I fucking, we talk and whatnot, and let's be real. I'm on my, oh, you're interviewing me. Like, fuck that. I'm talking over you shit. That's my moves for interviews, right? Like, I because in my head, it's like, check it. You can come do this shit. Look at that. I do know how to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but, like, I felt like this is... Well, I'm like, I'm an interviewer, right? Like, if I'm an yeah. interviewer and I'm on your interview show, let's see how few questions I can force you to not ask me or whatever. It's a game for me. Like, I, I just want it to be, like, a thing. I got told recently I came up kind of cocky and arrogant on Next Man Show. And I'm like... Fair enough. It's not my fault. I know things. <laughs> you know, <it's> not... <laughs> I smoke weed and I know things. It's it's bro, it's a, like it can reading, be a curse. Just... It can be a blessing. It's, it's all like about you read books. Bro. You learn shit. You talk to yo. This whole interview thing. Like I don't know where the fuck is taking me. Like in with you, I didn't even know what you were about. Really, I'm just like, well, the man's interviewed me. I should probably like hit him up and do the thing. That feels like <laughs> like I'm not so much into like share for share and shit but like interview for interview seems like the kind of exchange i could fuck with because like we both really right? do benefit off of that arrangement it's not like listen for listen or whatever it's not like shit my platform that's like i want to make friends with the guys that are able to say i can also interview you like those yeah. are cool people <laughs> now, in my opinion. Yo, if I'm sitting here talking to this whole plot and you're over there doing it's like, bro, collectively interviewers are like modern day journalists doing that kind of like shit that isn't really getting done. And I don't want to call myself a journalist. That's a real profession that motherfuckers go to school for. I'm trying to steal and copy what their profession is and do the bootleg YouTube's Twitch version of it. I'm in, man. Sign me <laughs> the fuck up, bro. Like, I am if to you journalism. Like what you see, follow what, here. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I am to journalism what Philip DeFranco is to the fucking professional news. I, that's what it is, but I people fuck so it. <laughs> I fucking love it. That's off to this guy right here, yo. <laughs> but, like, on the real, though, you're so fascinating. I... I literally heard you say nothing in either of the times we talked on cam and I've watched you a few times and you're like, well, let's be real, Trev, you kind of a character on that show for real at King's Court. You play this role. Yeah. So then you come in here and drop motivational for the kids on me. I'm like, motherfuckers is like, blessed though. I'm sitting there like, T 
taking notes in my brain. Like, I don't know about this Smith, our Smith fucking weed oil mixed with the, and I'm like, you was literally just kind of proving that sometimes people in certain spheres get so like tunnel vision in their various specialist perspectives that it takes somebody to just toss to the people. You know, my, my day job is really comparable. I collect stories and anecdotes and I turn them into data so that corporate people can understand it better. Right. So that's a lot of what I do. So it's kind of comparable to that role that you played where you captured a lot of stories and then you were able to in turn take what is actually happening in the world and give that back to people and meet them in that middle. Yo, it is valuable role, like such a valuable role in life for real. Like, I don't know how much I can even say, like, just thanks, man. Like, like if I understand correctly, you bypassed the tycoon that is America in the science field of weed and became part of a pivotal team of people that post legalization leveraged your research and data to push technology and things further to create a cycle of positive growth in weed research that is ultimately going to save lives. And you are smacked out in the middle of that revolution of weed that kind of got tied into Canadian legalization. Yeah, you pretty much. Wow. I don't think I can sum that up any better. Yeah, you, you nailed it there, bro. <laughs> wow. Like, y'all y'all know that that's like, this makes you kind of like a modern day hero and shit. Like a hero hero. Not like a mm, fake hero. A <laughs> you, you know. Because you followed it up with, and bro, I don't even make money on this shit for real, real. I get weird. But I don't even make money. I just do it for the love of it. Like, bro, you're the guy that they make movies out of. I mean, when you look at my career for the last five years, like ever since I stepped onto the retail market of cannabis, make no mistake, motherfuckers, I've been selling weed for three and a half decades, <laughs> just not legally, right? For the last five fucking years, I've seen the retail side and the wholesale side, which opened not just that, it was like business, marketing, fucking customer base, demographics. And if you're paying attention to any of this shit, you know, you, that's how you become successful. If you want to be successful in your environment, pay the fuck attention. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Right. <laughs> Some big time knowledge nuggets. Oh man, I can't be any more real about that. Like I wouldn't I would still just be a bud tender packing in the basement if I didn't absorb what was going on around me. Right. And it's true, I don't do this for the money. And and the, the real reason I do do it is just to educate, just to help, just to man, if if half the people could have the knowledge of treatment and ailments through natural herbs and cannabis. If I could share half the fucking knowledge I have with my friends, like the people I work with, Anna Washburn, fucking God, man, that girl is a pivotal breaking fucking. Okay. You ready for the second set of tears? Yeah. Through the RSO treatment program, we stuck to that regimen, right? It was this, this is what we knew. This is what we knew. What we didn't know. I lost some, I lost a client after like, like five days. They came to me on fucking Thursday and they died on Tuesday. I never had anything happen so fast. It was, and the husband called me, you know, she left behind, they left behind some kids and we kept, we kept losing like to certain cancer and, it, and I, I was chalking it up to like, we weren't getting to it fast enough, you know, 
like it was too it was progressed the problem with with cannabis cancer treatment is like without help from a doctor without a doctor pushing your their patient to come see you most of the time the patient comes and the most of the time we hear is there's nothing left to do they've sent me home western science is done they've given up there's i'm palliative you know and and now being again is this cocky or is this confident when i look a patient in the face and i say what if i told you they're wrong and then i tell them steve mcginnis's story 60 days 60 grams 67 days cancer free and you're telling me they gave you six months to live you had 60 fucking days let's let's do the work let's put it in right but we were losing people still even though everything was going right and uh anna washburn fuck man my boy zach's aunt she had a I believe it was her daughter, I want to say, or her niece. And it's been a few years, so it's hard to remember. She had cervical cancer, which was, uh, it's hormonal cancer. Hormonal cancer, the treatment is completely fucking different. We, we had to adjust and alter same products, just different treatment regimen. And we never would have known this if it wasn't for Hannah Washburn and her continued, like, doors shut in her face and she was like no you ain't shutting that door my fucking foot's coming through it you know like people tried to cut her off from shit and she was like no hell no you know they tried to decide like keep her quiet and like nope you know what i mean and like together we were we were like she had so much fucking knowledge to share and like no way to share it right and i was i was like a megaphone for her she could tell me shit. And I was just like, ah, fucking, you know, and, and thanks to Anna, thanks to Anna, we stopped losing people the way we were. We were, we had no explanation. We were doing everything right. You know, the fucking diet, the fucking treatment, the fucking, we had it all, but they were, they were just still dying. And Anna fucking made the breakthrough through like 24 hour fucking reading and looking and searching and Anna made a breakthrough for uh, treating hormonal cancers different than regular hormonal cancers. So fuck, big fucking shout out to her. She watches my show sometimes, so I hope she's watching because that woman, I mean, she she's like me. She, except she's, she's, She's even more humble than me because she'd never even sit. She'd never stand on a camera. You know, she, she's, she did everything she does. So compassionately driven. She now does, she creates uh, infused coffee bites that are for continued um, treatment post um, or, or sorry, after the cancer, after cancer treatment. And she, she donates all of this shit. She's fucking amazing. Huge shout out. Okay, that's it. I'm done with the tears. Ah, twice in three hours? Jeez. Yeah, seriously. And, <clears throat> but we've been able to help so many people and save so many people since then. And and what we were able to do, I, I don't work directly with uh, the Kelly's Green Lounge anymore. But for the, for the period I was with Kelly's Green Lounge, I mean, even the education that we were able to get out through that platform, and the educators that came together and, and educated on that platform, you know, 
the concept was fucking brilliant. You know, the delivery in the end, maybe, but the concept of having all these educators together in one group was like everything I was doing three years ago. You know, when I was on conference calls and calling fucking other countries at three in the morning, because that was the time difference to try to get someone on the phone that could tell me what happened. But you know what I'm saying? And so then we were able to create more platforms where educators were able to come together, researchers, educators, doctors, and we leveled the playing field, you know, so, and from there now where we are today, and we'll never stop. We'll just keep going and continue to teach. We continue to educate, you know, and research, 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 fucking research, 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 you know, that's how, that's how we'll keep progressing. All right. So Willie wants to drop a Willie bomb on you. Um, oh, you motherfucker! I didn't see. I can't. I just want the people to know. I can't see who's yeah, um, here watching. I can't see chatting. I can't see anything. But if I'd known Willie was here, I would. I should have known this was fucking coming. Oh, Fuck I, you, uh, Willie! All right, go. If Elder could smoke dope in a hot tub, bare ass with any celebrity, who would it be? Definitely a with any. Ce- if I could, any celebrity. If I could smoke. If I could smoke weed with any celebrity in, in a, a hot, hot tub, tub bare ass be? snake, bare ass. Oh, bare ass naked. Oh fuck! All right, hold on. See, here's the thing, That's man. A different question. I'm now. so, I'm not nah, ain't to me because I'm so chill and natural, like with my body. I just did a calendar recently, so I mean, like, I'm so comfortable. I don't give a shit about people what they look like naked. Bodies, a human body is a human body. So I mean, for me, it's going to be more like. Who's going to be chill enough with me to sit naked and not let that interfere with our fucking session? Bro. Right? Anytime, Because, Jeff. like... Anytime. I don't know. I'm still thinking, man. I'm stalling, bro. But, yo, I, I, would love to, I would love to know which celebrity that you would do it. But now you've made me curious about who the fuck would get naked with you in a hot tub in a non-weird way. That is such a fascinating way to twist this question. Willie, your bomb was great. I would have to go with, and it's only because I've smoked dope with him before, and it was fucking chill as fuck. No, okay, no, 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 I've done that already. Um, I'm going to go with. I can't even wait. Fuck, man. It has to be Willie Nelson, bro, for, for two reasons. One, that motherfucker is so wrinkly and old that you'd never notice if he was fucking naked or not anyways, he looked the same. Right. And two, like, I just talked for two and a half hours. I would love to sit and talk with Willie Nelson about what that motherfucker has seen mm. in the hundred something fucking years. You know what I'm saying? I feel like there's something to do in it naked too. Cause then there's like, no, there's no reason to lie when you're not wearing clothes. Yo. That's what I'm saying. Like, Willie be one of those guys that be the same thing. Like Willie wouldn't give a fuck if you were naked. Willie wouldn't give a fuck if he was naked. Willie would just give a fuck of how good the fucking weed was that I brought. Mm. And anybody that sat on my table and smoked knows that Willie probably I, I fucking I challenged some of the greatest pot smokers on Twitter and said, You need to come fucking look. I said, I know I'm a small bit nobody. I said I do a little night show. We said, but as far as I know, I hold the fucking record for no one ever being able to outsmoke me. Mm. I called on Seth Rogen. I called on fucking all the Trailer Park Boys. I called on all, like, directly on their fucking Twitters. And I was like, come with it, man. 
Nah, none of them want to step up. Yeah, I'm telling you, I take you on any day of the week that I can go to your place legally post COVID. Any day. Post post COVID, it's you, me, Ross, and Willie Scandals are going head to head, all in a full day, full blown smoke off competition. I don't hate this. It'll be like, it'll be like, I, it was going to be the whole May 29th concept. I'm so sad, guys, that this event has got to be canceled for now, but like, it just don't make sense to do it. But when we say canceled, I mean fucking postponed. Yeah. We invited like all kinds of music artists and, and um, stand-up comedians and educators and influencers and uh, legal companies, black market companies, legacy companies. Like We just invited anybody in the entire motherfucking world that wanted to come and be social. Mm. The second those restrictions were up. I rented a stage. I rented fucking barriers to go around my property. Um if we rented the sound equipment, we got like three sponsors to come in and do it. We got some, I got a major hip hop legend that was going to come. Y'all know who I'm fucking talking about. We got some two upcoming starts that were going to come, you know, and then we had the Kings that were going to be there. So, you know, both of them were going to perform and like, it was going to be a fucking rock of a good time. We were going to host the very first social event of 2021 um, because the original lockdown, you know, would have come up by May first or some shit which would have given us the four weeks to get it all together but now they extended the fucking lockdown and it's not up till may 21st mm. so like to try to put that event together in eight days and pretend that you know they're not going to put us into another fucking lockdown nah it's you know, like, fucking money put it all together it's like even fuck like, it man we might as well wait to that end for me it's like yo my province still has curfew <laughs> lockdown curfew is still like a real thing like Yo, I'm like, yo, I can't even be seen at that shit because, yo, I'm fucking in Quebec. So even if I went, I have to hide from cameras and shit type of thing because it's just a weird fucking time. That's where I'm at with it, which is... So it's like when post-COVID's done, bro, anytime, man. Any simple fucking things, you know? Like, once the... COVID I'm, uh, this is... I'm putting this out there right now for all of your fans, followers, and watchers, all my fans, followers, and watchers, and wherever this fucking interview ends up on whatever motherfucking platform, let it be known... The Trev Elder of Cannabis Jones invited all y'all motherfuckers up to my place, my property, cannabis to be provided. No fucking need to bring anything. I got 80-something fucking bongs in this house. I got 50-something fucking dab rigs, two e-nails, enough rolling papers and cannabis to kill a small fucking army. And you know what else I got that ain't nobody else got? No. I got a motherfucking O'Doyle. What the fuck's an right? O'Doyle? Doyle's my stage hand, bro. He comes uh, walking by every now and then. I try to give him props and credit. Oh, so. shit. Okay, that's fair. I like that a lot. A lot of, a lot of my shit wouldn't happen without Doyle. Yo, shout really out to Doyle, for real. That, I got a Chris Crumb. Helps me out. Chris Crumb's my Oh, yeah? Guy. I don't know so. how we made, uh, we made like these, we turned our, our people on Elder Smoke Check into characters. Like my wife is mm. Vanna. Is Vanna Jess. And she won't come on camera, but you'll see her arm come out on camera all the time, like pass me my fucking mug and shit like that. Mm. So she became Vanna Jess. I swear my guests look more forward to the Vanna fucking bombs than they do for me. But then once O'Doyle joined our team, I was trying to get his attention one day. Like O'Doyle smokes a lot of fucking weed. And he was on the couch and he's watching on his laptop. And it, like, I totally think he has everything under control. And like shit starts to go Ari. So I'm trying to get his attention. Like, you know, you saw me do the whole thing with the mouth and shit. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm good at that shit. But I couldn't get his fucking attention. So out of nowhere, I'm just like, oh, no. 
And I clapped twice, and it just became a thing. So now whenever O'Doyle goes by or O'Doyle's name gets mentioned, you got to do the double clap. It's like, O'Doyle! Wow. Right? But when it's organic yeah, like that, it's blessed. Yo, I got some. I got two questions for you I've been meaning to ask because they came from the Go comments. One of them is from the homeboy Lindell, and he wants to know, uh, being that you grew up in the early 80s, what was your favorite action figure and superhero while calling you an interesting person? Dude, that's a fucking sick question. My favorite fucking action hero, it was always a toss-up between Van Damme, Seagal, and Schwarzenegger. Van Damme, because, I, and I'm not going to lie, dude, I tried to fucking do the splits on chairs at least six fucking times in my childhood, right? Thinking that I would somehow miraculously be able to fucking do this. So he's not my favorite for making me try to do that and rip my groin. Um, Seagal for sure, because he made anybody be able to be a badass. You know what I mean? He was fat and overweight with a ponytail, and he just like turned badasses into fucking nothing. That's hilarious. But I guess the all-time best. Come on, you know it's fucking Schwarzenegger. He was the fucking man. An action figure, dude. If you went into my house when I was a kid, we had a four-bedroom backstory. I'll make it fast. I promise. My I parents' room, my brother's room, and my room. It. Across the fucking hall was the spare room, which was the toy room. I, I don't want to. My dad worked at Hydro. My mom worked three fucking jobs. She split her ass fucking opening her own cake decorating store. My father was gone on swing shift. We didn't have it easy. My parents worked hard to make sure that, you know, we had toys. We weren't spoiled, but this is going to sound like it. So when you go over to the spare room, you open it up. The room was completely divided. On one side of the room was every, and I'm, I'm not joking, man. If you name it, bro, who's ever watching, the guy that asked, if you name it, not only will I tell you I had it, I'll describe it to a fucking T, and I can probably tell you how much it cost me back when I was seven years old. We had Star Wars on one side of the room. Star Wars was huge when we were kids and G.I. Joe on the other. Mm. Not the old school G.I. Joe that were fucking 12 inches. Take it down a notch, bro. I'm not that fucking old. Just the little six inch guys that yeah, had the I didn't swivel even arms think about these shit. 12 inch ones. What 12 inch G.I. Joe's? <laughs> Yo, bro. Google Google G.I. Joe fucking 19, probably, probably 70 something. Okay. I'm they used to be like these huge fucking G.I. Joe action figures. They nice. were like this big. Yeah, if you uh, got one, yo, bro, you're sitting on a fortune. <laughs> so, yo, back at, back in the earlier part, we was talking video games, and you're, like, being part of the whole video game era of all of them. What's your favorite console of all time? Like, what is your favorite go-to video gaming scenario? If you'd have asked me this fucking two months ago, hands fucking down, it would have been Xbox. I love my Xbox. I mean, if you go retro, it's the Intellivision, the game I talked about in the beginning, only because it's the only thing I can play fucking Tron Deadly Diss on. Mm. But I've, I've had every console my entire life. I've never missed out one. I've never skipped one. I've always spent every dollar I have on my video games. So I've never, like, I feel like I have a non-biased, purely educated answer on that. My favorite gaming system of all time, hands down, is an Oculus. Yeah, y'all don't know what an Oculus is, you all need to Yo. get one. You all spend fucking thousand you bucks have on an a Oculus? PlayStation 5. Fucking right I do, brother. Yo, Trev, you want to do some VR shit? Oh, bro, I've, I've been talking about it. Okay, two things I want to say now. 
my man here did an interview on my show and he said something that it has inspired me and it changed the direction of my, of where my career was going next. So I want to hit that off with you real quick. I want to say thank you to you. It was your inspirational talk, man, about when you were talking about how people, when we share an industry, people that share the same space in an industry. So in my case, fellow influencers and fellow educators. Um, I don't consider myself so much an entertainer, even though I put on that show once a week for the last fucking year and a half of my life. Um, you know, my main focus is teaching and educating. But everybody knows, even in teaching and educating in the influencer world, if you're trying to get paid on this block, that fucking, you know, it's a tough industry to be in. Because I'm not trying to get paid, I don't really give a fuck struggling for the time and the airtime and the viewers and all the followers and all. I don't give a fuck about that. I only, I reach the people that need to be reached, right? People that say, go follow Trev. They're not saying follow Trev because he's a funny fucker. They're not saying follow Trev because he's got bars. Don't, don't go follow Trev because you know, he does stand up comedy. Go check Trev out because he's going to teach you how to fucking cure whatever the fuck it is that you have. We might have some laughs along the way, but that's why people come to follow me, you know? So what you said about people in the, like, in the same industry competing with each other for followers, that hit home with me, man. Like you have no idea. It was like, because I look at our Instagrams and our Twitches and our Facebooks and I look how the world is judged by likes. Like, let's be honest, man, we get paid up here on camera by how many viewers and likes and subscriptions we get because then that's when the sponsorship money comes and blah, 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 all the way down. So the competition can get fucking real. Competing for airtime and followers can get fucking real. This guy underneath, I don't know where you all look where I come up on the screen, but he's underneath me. This guy, (laughs) this guy, this guy said the most brilliant fucking thing I've ever heard. Why are we working against each other? and competing when we should be working together the way you describe you know like throwing spotify's on fucking repeat for your boys while you're fucking sleeping and shit i've been doing that ever since it was a fucking most simplistic smartest fucking thing i've ever heard but you took it i took it you took it to a level that i wanted to take my level to my industry to we like we all need to work together i had a show that was on at the same time as willie's and i was like okay i'm no longer putting that show on on that day of the week at that time fuck it that's Willie's time. That's Willie's slot. Mm. Right? Why, why, why do I want to make my followers try to pick where they need to be at 9 p.m. on a fucking Friday? That's a dump, especially since me and Willie are fucking friends. Yeah. That's so counterproductive to both of our fucking careers. It didn't make any sense. Yeah, I swear. I so my new inspiration. Friday night shit, or at least be done by like 8.30 latest. Well, my new, my new idea, my new project and what I'll be working on, and I'm throwing it right out there. And if anybody steals my idea, go fuck your face because I'll have my own people. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you know, all of us entertainers and educators and influencers and comedians and all of, all of us that all kind of follow in the same circle and, and, you know, with the same followers and all this, you know, that, that, that um, group that I broke free from a couple of weeks ago, again, the concept was on point 
so what I'm doing, what I'm working on right now is bringing all of my fellow educators and all my fellow influencers and all my fellow music guys, my Willies, my Rosses, my Stefans, my fucking, all of my friends that have shows and that we work and we put the real work in, not the bullshit work, the real work in. And I want to bring us all together on like one Twitch channel. So instead of having people try to subscribe to you for $2.99, and these are fucking hypothetical numbers. I don't know shit about this shit. Yeah, Willie's teaching me everything. But like, yeah, shout out, Willie. Thank you. But like, instead of trying to get people to subscribe to me for $2.99 to watch Elders once a week, or fucking Willie's, you know, Willie, the Willie show, right, once a week, or this show once a week, or that show once a week, this show once a week. Yo, why don't we put everything on one fucking title, you know, and charge them $24.99? To see all of our shit, right? And then we all work together and schedule our fucking shows so we're not overlapping anybody. And then all of a sudden, people are going to be like, oh, so I don't have to fucking have 17 different charges coming off my credit card for like fucking to watch all my favorite fucking friends. I want to support everybody. Yeah, there's, but actually, there's a whole lot of ways to make that okay. viable. You got it? Yeah, no, for real, there's a lot of... Yeah, so like... That's a big topic, but there's a lot of ways to do that. The YouTubers are already doing this shit. If you just look at Curiosity Stream and shit, like Curiosity Stream and Nebula partner together, and for like what fourteen ninety nine or whatever it is, fuck, you can get all this fucking content from the YouTubers that used to make good shit on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, see, I need to be in that club, bro. That's the club I'm trying to be in. I didn't see. I'm always late to the game. I'm old. No, bro. but it's it's like you're not actually though. Like honestly, this is still inception stage. But let's say you take it to a all space VR, and like instead of focusing on like. Because yo, it's I don't I don't know. Man. VR's next thing. If anybody hasn't figured this out yet, you heard it here. You heard it from him first. You heard it from me next. I'm telling you, VR is the next fucking thing. Yo, bro, do you so have like, an alt space? Get ready for that. Hey, do you have an alt space VR account? No, I have an OnlyFans. Don't tell my wife. No, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I don't even know what that means yet. So bro. it's like um, I mean... it's like uh, I don't know how to put it. You create an avatar. And there's a bunch of spaces. See so through events. Like Microsoft uh, owns this thing, so it's not like okay, Microsoft's not going bankrupt anytime soon, is what I mean. So like, it's not a terrible right, place right, to right, fuck right. around with. Um, and they're going to invest in it. So they threw their big tech conference at a year in AltSpace VR so that people can attend. Now, what's really cool about AltSpace, where it helps bridge some gaps, is that like uh, you don't need a VR headset to participate you can have your little avatar and kind of get a shittier version of it using your mouse to look around, but you can do it from like a computer. So if you got the VR, it's litty cause your whole like hands and shit like move and crap. So it's fucking right. Up. But then anyone can like participate. Like it's more like a, a more interactive, like zoom is like, okay. I'm not like satisfied with zoom. Like this is okay. But like, what can we do to make it more interactive and interesting and engaging? Like, like I can't really see the audience. I see a chat. Now imagine you could like look out and you see the audience with the avatars and chat bubbles above their heads and shit. Like, like, yo, it has to get better than this. If this is the virtual world, cause this is not like the best. So I'm just, uh, I don't know. I'm gonna go and fuck around with it more, but all space VR is like this, like there's spaces and events and you can like watch YouTube movie. You, you can literally in this shit, organize like group youtube sessions or movie watchings and whatnot because it just exists and it's not like youtube and all that so there's no like real copyright concerns it's all private parties in virtual spaces so there's like a lot yeah, like, of potential. I, gotta check. I gotta i gotta get deeper into that for sure that's my for plan sure, for, for sure. like my va- that's one of my vacation plans is to delve into that but like 
it's Let's the way i see work, it it's bro. like <laughs> it's like twitch but like next level more than it's like youtube because live is the most important element like if you look in all markets everything's going live like video on right. demand is is the place you put your post live <laughs> you know like, yeah 100 yeah i mean everything's that way i mean i'm trying to get this i'm actually in the works to help somebody produce a new show um you know and they're like well we don't want to do it live we want to record it and edit it and stuff and i'm like trust me man like that that's done that's old like people want the live people want to be part of the interaction the same time that you know that that but part of the audience wrong. interaction is is part of what makes what we do with the lives so but let's so go like a good. whole other direction with that um y'all must have heard across the way that like company after company media conglomerates uh were dying on youtube between like 2017 and 2019 and what happened was, is people realized that there's no way to make back the money on this content. They took a lot of investor money and they made all this beautiful, high budget, edited, edited, but whatever. But the profit difference between the low budget produced shit and the high budget shit did not justify the increase in production value. So you're seeing it now in even things like Battle Rap with COVID. They now have a subscription app for URL, like the Battle Rap League. And it's more profitable for everybody involved to do a lot of smaller scale, at least for now, but like, and I'm, I'm just kind of talking a bit out of my ass, so don't quote me too hard on this, but like, like it's a lot more profitable to put a lot of low budget, 12 person battles, like what, the people in the room are there for the tournament in like a basement, no crowd, no anything. Right. You flood the content with this. It's all pretty good content. Everybody's still doing the thing. Everybody's still watching this shit on YouTube after. But instead of worrying about high production value, high return, you kind of go the opposite route and figure out how to sustainably create low production value that has high interest and then attach a subscription model to that. And that's how you go fucking IPOs down the line. Like, yeah. See, you talk, you make it all, you make it, you make it sound. I think that shit in my head. I don't know how to make it sound like that. I try help, to explain man. that to people. Doesn't help. And I'm like, I don't understand I'm it like, well, uh, Not that I don't understand, but like, I don't explain it right either. I still just hit a different market, right? And the people who get it, get it, and they don't know if they don't. And it's hard to like fully simplify it, I think. Um, I need to do visual things. So like we're gonna make a 24 minute project, a music album. So we're gonna use this VR app just to tell a story with avatars in this like setting for free. It's not gonna cost money yeah. anyways. And then, like, at least if you can't picture it, you can watch that and you can be able to picture what the fuck I'm, I have in my head a little bit more. Because, yo, it's pictures. How can you, like, prove the concepts a little bit? A little proof of concept, a little video here and there. And then, like, yo, you can screen grab your, like, OBS adventure, or your, sorry, your Oculus adventures via OBS. So you just, like, set the screen grab up, up, and then just need a 2K monitor and you're good. You can capture all of it. And then, like yeah. things like that and then people see us doing it and they're like okay that's more interesting right like i can picture this now which is i think the the problem is then like yo even with vr until i used it i was like yo whatever whatever but once you play shitty vr games they're better than like games you played your whole life right <laughs> like you just i love it. my vr man yeah because you're in it and that's it like i mean especially when you hear me talking like you know i've been playing atari since i was five years old so like I went mm. from fucking a little triangle on the screen pushing dots to where I'm pulling a strapped gun off my back, a virtual one, and pulling my bolt out and putting my chain fed bullets in and pulling my slide back and, you know, no recoil, get down on my knees to crouch. You know, anybody that thinks that that is not 
like the coolest part of technology and where we're advancing and and if you think that vr is only going to be about video games well that's ah, so far from it you're like just just yeah, imagine it yet. like you they're doing all this voice command shit so evidently they're going to be able to hear voice triggers what i mean by a voice trigger is you rapping your fucking song just to go back to music is easier for me you rapping your shit and then as you say the hook and you can now have it where it's voice commanded. So if your DJ or whatever delays, it's not like time to like, you have to be choreographed. It's when you say the words, but not all the words, just the words in this particular way, it knows make a holographic dragon up here. And like, yeah. that's where shit's going. So cool. And then yeah, it'll yeah, get yeah. to a point where it's like augmented reality and virtual reality all blended together into this weird mesh where like in your room you could see anyway i can picture a lot of pieces but like how do you put this puzzle together when the people who are running the strings are the music industry the film industry yo i've actually hit up companies that do music events and they just ignore me and leave me on red and shit because like who the fuck am i I'm not a famous anything, right? Like, so I give up on that route. I'm like, mm, I'm not a salesperson. I need a pushier person in my life. <laughs> but like, Yo, welcome. Welcome. What's up? <laughs> but you know. I'm that guy. Nah, for real though. It's, it's, it's cool though to like see <clears throat> your passion for it and you like seeing it like that because not a lot of people do. And as more people see where it's going, it's like you create the wave. And I love your like idea of it because it's, it's community driven. Like this doesn't work in like mass scale way. It's more like you're finding a thousand dope people that you love, that you want to be around than it is looking for millions of adoration. Like I don't, that's scary, but I could deal with a thousand people in a database. I could handle remembering a thousand people's worth of shit if I tried. Right. See, I got on our Facebook group only has like 700 people or 600 people and everybody's like, oh, it's not huge. And it's like, but I know every single one of them. You know, like everyone, I'm my show, I, I do my show here shit like 40 minutes or something like that you know and i might only get 100 viewers or i only might get 190 viewers. viewers i'm just gonna throw it out there <laughs> oh dude i i you know my my instagram account gets you know 500 views a show and it's like people are like oh i'm like i don't want to sponsor you only get 500 views and it's like you know what though those 500 views were like 500 live views I'm interactive with that audience. I know those people. Those are my friends. Oh, just drop you know? the word concurrent. Just say I had 500. Concurrent. Concurrent. Yeah, that's the word you're oh, missing. Yeah. Just say that word. Okay. You'll you'll delight different. If you see a 500 concurrent viewers, you might have a different reaction than 500 viewers. No. Well, again, with not these these were back when I was trying to make you know mm. make the videos what they were, but um, you know I say to people all the time, I'd rather that. I would rather that small circle at 500 that you know 700 facebook group because then i can be interactive with all 700 people on that kind of personal level you know you start getting into tens to thousands to twenty thousands i see some influencers you know with forty-four thousand viewers how the fuck are you supposed to interact with forty-four thousand different fucking people know. and have a meaningful following like to uh, me it's well basically I at that point you have gated followings that's the reality like i mean it's it's not what I want, but it's what I kind of like, you can't really like have your cake and eat it sometimes. Right. So if you're very successful in this world, it gets to a point where 
It really is. Like, people like Ismail Gadamsi, who's there on, like, every episode, or even this dude, DJ Overflow, who inevitably we're going to go raid. You know why him? Because he keeps coming on through and showing that love, so you kind of get that love back in that way. Or, like, a Willie Scandals, and as these different people appear in your life, you kind of get that core main group, and then you move them to Discord. So y'all chatting up in the yeah. Discord, it becomes almost like you create that private environment that is right. for the real ones, and then the public environment for those that are just because you, you just can't know everybody. <laughs> but yeah, you might no, want. yeah, fair. So like, it, you there's ways to control the access to you, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but it's also like something that has to be thought about in the public world, like. Yo, I, I mean, I want to talk to everybody that hits me up, but I don't literally want to just sit there and shoot the shit about nothing all the time, you know? Like, there's yeah, got to yeah, be, like, enough, definitions right, yeah. to the rules of etiquette, even just across all of us. It's so weird to just know that, like, people hit me up and go, hi, and I might not respond, and then later on, hi, hey. I'm like, bro, <laughs> like, what is this? Are you a bot? Are you a Yeah, human? what's up, bot? Like, I don't hey, know. have you heard? Did you yeah. get your number yet? Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, right? Because like, you don't know now. And you're like, I, know, I don't want to talk to you. Because and then you're like, am I being a rude asshole? But I don't know. I would, <laughs> see, I always think, too, if your interaction with me starts with hi and, like, nothing it, like, that's it, two letters, I mean, come on, put some work in. <laughs> Give me something to work with here, you know? Hi. Well, uh, yeah, no, I didn't hear that I won a new trip and uh, my dead uncle died in North Africa that left me fucking six billion dollars. I'm gonna pass. <laughs> yeah, but then it's like there's always gonna be that like one person that was like super legitimate, and you know that's always in the back of my mind too. I don't know. I like I like the way you see the world a lot. And there's a lot to consider, but yeah, I know that you have to go wrap up soon and go do your own. Yeah, I do. And you know what? My phone, my phone hit six percent, and I'm. My my wifey just left, and I'm looking for my stage hand, and I'm thinking, if I don't plug my phone in, I might just drop right dead. <laughs> nah, so but, I, th um, I think it's a good time to wrap up. Still, this was a great yeah. conversation. Um, I loved, loved it, man. Loved it. I don't know what to expect, but I'm glad we did this conversation. And just to the people in the world out there, I do care about things outside of the world of immediate rap music and hip hop and shits. You know, like you could be like a person that does a thing. And it'll go down. That's the that's the goal. It's bridging gaps beyond like one industry kind of thing. So thank you for helping me be like a case study that we could still have a three hour conversation and you're not even a rapper or anything. You're just nice an, an enthusiast about a thing, and that's really blessed um, to me. So this was a huge. If success. it's all uh, if it's all right, I want to give a couple shout outs before we peace out. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to give a huge monster shout out to um, to the Healing House out in Alderville. Uh, big shout out to Dan and Amy Tobin. Um, big, big opportunities coming that way. Uh, they've, uh, they've really put some investment and some time into me. Um, we're going to do some great things coming up. So um, check us out at Healing House uh, for sure. Big shout out to Dan and Amy um, for everything that we're going to push forward and make happen. Uh, big shout out to Elders Greenhouse uh, and Elders Smoke Shack and all my followings out there, guys. Of course, these shows and everything wouldn't be happening without your guys' continued support and help. I love it. Um, and big shout out to my mom. My mom mm. is finally fucking making it home. She's been gone since September. Um, she's going to be home here in a couple of weeks and I can't wait to see her. She's my biggest supporter. Um, she's been my biggest uh, inspiration to keep going. So just want to give those people a shout out. Thank I you so it. much. Uh, and thank you, my man, for having me on. This has been, uh, I, it's been a very long time since I've had 
such a lengthy discussion about my life and where it started and how it's ended to where it is today. So it's been a blessing to sit here and go down memory lane with you, my man. Yeah, I've been enjoying it as well. Like I said, it was just so unexpected, but also super pleasant. A very big emotional roller coaster, and I like your storytelling. But yo, thank y'all for watching, the people who came and went, the people in the future that are peeping this, because uh, it'll be at YouTube uh, and all that, podcast networks, all the shits. I just put it everywhere after the fact. I mean, it, it will, the one place it won't be, ironically, is Twitch, because after 60 days, it'll be gone. But yo, for all of you watching, um, thank you in the future. Make sure to follow, subscribe, all that good shit. It's already available on the Facebooks and stuff. We'll have a YouTube video in a week or two. Some clips will come for those that want to peep that and hit up the clips channel and just show. Because, yo, I know none of y'all in the future might want to go through the whole thing, but we're going to take the highlights and make little videos out of it and shits. But thank y'all for watching again. Subscribe, like, follow, blah, 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 blah. Special thanks to the patrons. It's Mel Gadamsey, Chris Potter, Jonathan Barnes, DJ Blackhurst, and Linda Williams. Scribble the top. They support what we do. If you support what we do, patreon.com slash behind that suit. On that note, we're going to start the raid real soon. Thank y'all for watching, though, yos, and live long and prosper everyone make sure to follow uh mr uh, trev elder jones the facebook groups and whatnot to join the green lounge is up in the description of the video so yeah live long prosper to real time peace